Hey guys, what's going on? I think I'm live. I hope I'm live. I hope we're live. What's up, guys? What's up? Welcome to our very first webinar. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be a long one. We've got quite the slideshow for you guys. What's going on? Oh, I need that. Nope. Well, at least we know we can hear us. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, so uh, this is something new we're trying, guys. This first webinar is going to be free here on YouTube, of course. Uh, Aaron and I both had some presentations we had put together in the past, uh, creating this UFO timeline, um, dating all the way back to the 1800s. So we decided to compile them into one large presentation and present it as a webinar. And we realized like a lot of the stuff we take for granted, we always talk about, we understand it, but a lot of our audience doesn't. And this is going to be a video that you'll be able to share with people who don't know much about the subject. And we're just going to paint this picture and just show everybody what we already know and how they've changed the narrative over time and how what they used to tell us and what they're telling us now are completely different. So uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. Um, I guess we'll wait a, a few more minutes for some more people to come in. Is there anything else we had to announce? Um, Who's coming to the conference? Can't wait to see you guys out there. It's right around the corner. Uh, May 22nd through the 25th. It's going to be here before we know it. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, Colleen, you, guys. you said hello from Illinois. That means you have no uh, excuse not to come to the conference in Illinois. So we hope to see you there. <laughs> right. Hey, Colleen. Hey, Divine Fractal. So as we go through hey, this, Leslie. guys, um, Vonda. We have a lot to get through tonight. It's gonna we're gonna be here for probably at least two hours. Uh, might even have to take a pee break at one point. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot to go through. So if you guys have questions along the way, feel free to ask, and we'll try to get to them. This is experimental for us too. We don't know how this is gonna go, but we want to give you guys a chance to experience the webinar and see what you can expect for future webinars which we might do together. We might even do our own individual webinars or uh, stuff mm -hmm. exclusive to the Patreon. Uh, we'll see how that goes. What is on the Patreon already is the documentary that was, it's on there already, right? Or not? Uh, not yet. It will be really soon. Okay. So last year at our conference, uh, a film crew from the Netherlands came and filmed a documentary of our conference. And it's actually really, really good. It's really good. It's yeah. hard to find. It's hard to watch because you have to have a, a VPN assigned to the Netherlands. And set it to the Netherlands. Right. Because it's country restricted. Um, so you got to jump through hoops just to watch it. So, uh, and, we, and we, I remember we posted about that when it first right. came out, but not, I'm, probably 20 people have <laughs> actually watched it, you know. It's so, and it's um, a shame because it's really good. Um, and it, we're really proud of it because outside it, of the it was our first conference, and somebody came and filmed a documentary about our first conference. So it's it's a really cool documentary. And if you haven't yeah. seen it, that's going to be available to any of the Patreon members who sign up. Um, this way, you don't have to, you know, pay for the VPN and set it to the Netherlands Netherlands to watch it. You can just watch it through our Patreon. Um, is there anything else? Yeah, I would love to see that documentary. Yeah, if you were at the conference last year, there's a good chance you might even be you in might it. Might be in it, right? There's a lot of the crowd and uh, that was actually made it into the background. Um, 
but it was really good. It it actually does pretty, um, they do a pretty good job of covering the secret space program. Mm-hmm. And it was filmed for a docu-series over in the Netherlands. And I don't really know like what else, like I don't know much about the docu-series, but this was one of the episodes in the docu-series. It's like an hour long. It's well, it's a, it's a TV show that covers just different conspiracy theory topics. Um, and so that episode was on the secret space program and they came to our conference and filmed and did a really good job yeah. on it. It's, it's really, really good. Right. Um, yeah. You'll see Tony Rodriguez in it. Um, Johan Fritz, Jody, Mark Demizio, um, us as there's, um, Diana Dunbar, if you're here, Suzanne Spooner. Yeah. yeah. Suzanne Spooner is in it. Yeah. Right. So it's really good. Um, it's, yeah. It's awesome. So if you're just coming in, guys, there is a documentary that was filmed last year at our conference that is going to be available on our Patreon if you sign up for that. Um, it'd be the only place to find it unless you um, figure out a way to watch it with a VPN set to the Netherlands. So um, what's up, loyal? What up, guys? How you guys doing? Anything else? We look forward to seeing you guys at the conference. It's not too late to grab a ticket. There's still some, uh, there's still tickets left. And if you can't make it, live stream tickets are available. You can always take advantage of that. Um, some people are having trouble finding a place to stay. There are still some Airbnbs and hotels available in town. And there's nothing wrong with camping. Guys, if you like camping, it's a beautiful place to camp. Um, that's how he said he was. That's yeah. how a lot of the conferences we go to, actually, you can. that's all you can do is camp. Yeah, mostly um, at least, yeah. So it, it's a fun experience either way. So if you want to come out and camp, all that information is on the website, which is in the description below, journeytotruthcon.com. Anything else before we get started? Aaron? Not for me. No, let's do it. Um, I'm trying to figure out. Welcome, okay. everyone. Good to see you all. So this is obviously, this is our first time doing this. So bear with us if it's a little, uh, if it's not s- smooth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're trying to work we're, out the kinks. And we're, we're new to this. So bear it, with us. It will get better as we move on, as we go on. Uh, that's why the first one's free. And a lot of this information that we're about to cover, a lot of it, most people know a lot of it. Some of you guys might not know, but um, some of it is pretty surface level compared to some of the, how deep we actually get on this channel, but it all ties together though. It's all important. Right. Like that's, that's the thing. It all ties together. It all ties together, but it, and- it paints a good big picture of what's going on. You know, even the surface level stuff like helps with that. So. And we wanted to make this one free and shareable for mm-hmm. any, for your friends and family and stuff. Um, and then, uh, yeah, sorry. Let me figure out what I have to do here. <clears throat> and then we'll be monitoring the chat. If you guys have any questions along the way, like I said, there's a lot to get through. So um we will try to get to all of them if we can't then let's see this zoom bar has to move i want to see what they see on the screen before i start i think they're going to see that i'm pretty sure they're going to see well that's going to change because i click play there in a second Okay, so they actually they're actually seeing they're seeing this. the full they're seeing this, not that. Yeah. So they're gonna see the next slide before it comes. That's all right. That's fine. 
unless, all right, how do I go back? Okay, so I can just do that. Anyway, all right, you guys ready for this? I think it's great to do a timeline with the info. Yeah, it is good to have a timeline too. Um, foil, yes, you get a whole presentation. <laughs> we put a lot of work into this, hours actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm sick of UFO disclosure. Uh, this is something that I, this is the whole reason uh, we decided to do this because we realized uh, bullshit that we're being fed right now, the narrative we're being told right now, they're trying to erase history. They're trying to erase everything we know about UFOs and ETs that's been happening since the 1800s. And I was like, I could put together a timeline and like debunk all this current shit that they're saying now. So that's what we did. Is there a way we can, you can play the slide so it just shows one slide at a time? Maybe. That would be better. Well, it would be. Show me. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it that way because then it takes up the full screen. Right. Yeah, actually, you're right. It's going to be a lot yeah. easier to see. Well, let's see how that shows up down there. Yep, there we go. Perfect. All right, there we go. That's better. So we're sick of UFO disclosure, and here's why. <laughs> you guys have seen this meme. We sound like crazy people trying to explain to people that this stuff is real, especially to uh, the flat earth pushback that we have now, which is really interesting. Um, you know, who would have ever thought that we would be fighting a narrative that space doesn't even exist and the earth is flat and we're all screwed. <laughs> I mean, essentially. And then we all know this already. And we're here to write, rewrite history. So we have never been alone. That's what you guys need to understand. This is something that um, there's evidence dating back to, I mean, as far back as you want to look in ancient times, it's, it's, we didn't start in ancient times. We started in the 1800s, but you've seen ancient aliens. If you've traveled the world, you know, the monuments, the statues, the megaliths, the hieroglyphs, the petroglyphs, the pictographs, everything's there to depict ancient aliens. So at least we know that the presence has been here for a long time. Um, okay, these I'm skipping. Those are from my own. Uh... All right, here we go. Just to debunk the flat earthers. <laughs> <laughs> so this is has nothing to do with UFOs, but I found it interesting because uh, when we're putting this timeline timeline together, there's a lot that takes place in Antarctica. And if Antarctica is an ice wall, like we're being told by the Flat Earth Society, um, you ha you would have to disregard all of this information. But there's so much evidence here. Both can't be true. Right. So this is, I need to move this bar. I don't know if I can. It's not showing up on here. I know, but I want to be able to see. Oh. Anyway, oh, okay. it's okay. Sorry, guys. Still learning. All right. So this, uh, the first sighting of Antarctica is now widely acknowledged to have taken place on the 28th, maybe the 27th of January, 1820. During the voyage of two Russian ships, the Vostok and the Mirny, the explorers circumnavigated the continent twice in an attempt to map the landmass as accurately as possible. So they circumnavigated the continent twice to map it out as accurately as possible. This, and obviously there's a lot of different contradicting history on the discovery of Antarctica. Either way, we know it exists. And if this is true, these guys could not have circumnavigated an ice wall. 
to map it out. Right. I have got to figure this out real quick. I got to switch the screen back and I got to move this stuff. Sorry. Can you move that? I'm moving this higher and then just minimize that. I just put it down here. Now just minimize it. Okay. Sorry, guys. We're working out this kink. These kinks, I guess, pay attention to the... It says uh, frozen. Oh, it's frozen for them. Somebody. Is it frozen? Are we still um just for one person? I think we're still good, guys. I think we're good. So anyway, 1820, uh, two Russian ships circumnavigated Antarctica twice to map it accurately. I don't know how you do that if it's a nice wall. All right, so now I don't a lot of people aren't aware of the coming race. A lot of people are, but in 1871. Um, this book was written called The Coming Race, Vril, The Power of the Coming Race, Proto-Occultic Theories and Darwinism. It's narrated by an American who stumbles on an underground race descended from the ancient Aryans that's harnessed a source of infinite power called the Vril. So this is important to remember as we go on. So uh, it helps make sense of some of the stuff we're about to get into. But you need to understand that the Vril is an infinite source of power. Um, the Coming Race is a novel um, published in 1871. Some readers have believed the account of a superior subterranean master race and the energy form called the Vril, at least in part. Um, I'm not going to read all that, but the main reason I posted this is so we can understand that uh, there is evidence of a subterranean master race that uh, some call the Aryan race uh, that was discovered in the 1800s uh, by the Germans. And this book was written, and the Vril is a source of power that's within our Earth. Um, that's an infinite source of power. Is it has zero point energy? Yeah. Did you want to add anything to that? No. Okay, so that's 1871. Moving on to 1890. If you guys are familiar with the book Shining the Light, which Aaron just happened to be synchronistically guided to, um, you can tell him a little bit about the book if you want. Um. Yeah, I found it randomly in a in a bookstore here um, in the metaphysical slash paranormal section. Um, I just grabbed it, started flipping through it, and it, it looked it just had tons of disclosure in it. Essentially, uh, there's like an insider in it that's like just giving all this information. And bought it, read it. It was amazing. I, I'm like Tyler has to read this. Gave it to him. Right. You can't put it down and once you start. It blows your mind. Yeah. I was on the airplane fun. recently, like, like I was so tired. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to read this. And then I like, I was like wide awake <laughs> to it. Yeah. Um, but they, they talk about in 1890. So we hear about the uh, Granada treaty that was signed with Eisenhower and the Grays. But in 1890, this talks about the shadow government ET alliance being formed all the way back then. Mm -hmm. And they say a group of nine ETs called the Potaz. Now, the, the reason he... Okay, can I do a quick side note? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, what we call the Cabal or the Illuminati or whatever, that goes back way, way before 1890, actually. But I think what this is referring to is the... So the ET alliance, like like the reptilians or the right. grays or the negative ETs that really first really formed an alliance with that group right. in 1890. Absolutely. So that we're not saying that group started in 1890, just to be clear. Right. But and the, the reason that it's spelled out like this in the book is he explained that we don't have an English way 
of saying the actual name of this race. So he yeah. spelled it out, but he said there's no actual way to say it in our language. So I would just say the potas, the X, make the X silent. I don't know um, how you want to uh, pronounce that. It's up to you. But they made an alliance with the U.S. shadow government in 1890, apparently a group of nine ETs. Um, they gifted the U.S. a satellite slash space station that has been parked here for over 105 years at that time. So in 1890, they claimed that they had been here for over 105 years observing us. And they felt it was a good time to intervene. And that's when they made an alliance with our shadow government. And they, in the book, they described this as a bribe. So this was their end. This was a way to, to get their foot in the door and start, uh, you know, pulling the strings behind the scenes. And, and also, another note, this is only book one in a seven book series. So there's actually seven of these books. <laughs> I didn't even know that. And the, the farther, the later the book, the more expensive they are used, I guess, because they're um, like book one and two are, are relatively cheap. But once you get past that... And there, uh, they get more expensive. there's always the argument that, you know, th this can't be proven, but there's no paper trail for any of the stuff. A lot of the stuff that we hear about, um, we're lucky right. to have this information in a book. Um, so just use discernment, guys, like just because we're presenting this doesn't mean that this is absolute fact. But this is a source that's telling us this. And at this point, we can't ignore any information. We need to do our due diligence and connect the dots ourselves because we're being lied to. Um, so essentially, the U.S. government was manipulated into working with these groups in exchange for a highly advanced space station. And this space station was used until we finally developed our own in the 40s. And this was the beginning of the infiltration. And then, all right. So then in the, in the, after 1890, we started having the Zeppelin show up. And I'll let Aaron talk about this. Yeah, in the 1800s, particularly in the 1890s, um, people started seeing these mystery airships all over the place. There's different terms, Zeppelin, dirigibles, airships, all kind of interchangeable terms. Um, and, and at least in the U.S. in the 1890s is when they were really widely seen and reported. Um, and some, a lot of them were we're definitely like like we were building them and they were normal kind of craft like but um in the 1890s there were ones that were very very farther advanced than the the ones that like we were building on the surface you know so and those started being reported and um and by the way these in general were being reported by thousands of people and um, they were very widely seen, but then these more advanced ones started being seen and they were landing in, in the U.S. and people were getting out, supposedly speaking German out of them. So it there's there's uh, things that point to that being the Germans first, very first like space program that they were developing all the way back in the late 1800s. And here's a clip of uh, David Wilcock right. talking about that. I was actually in the in the crowd during this. Talk. This is just a short clip. Yeah, this is from Contact in Desert 2018. And I hope I was, you guys can hear there. this. I don't know how this is going to come across audio-wise, so this will be our first test. Because they owned this railroad. Go back. People were having... Go back a little bit. To 44. 44? Yeah. 2144? Yeah. Okay. You... The yeah. Illuminati folks were trying to build a space program. And so they started with dirigibles. In the late, 19... In the late 1890s, there were all these airship sightings. 
The oh, that was founding of the U.S. Railroad was done by Harriman, one of the Illuminati bloodlines, names. And then they say, okay, everybody, get on board the train, the transcontinental train. We'll give you the guns. We'll give you the ammunition. Shoot as many buffalo oh, as you can. 22. Have fun. They did all this advertising about 22, four years. So that was a genocide plan by the Illuminati to destroy Native Americans by taking away their food supply. And it worked very well. It's really, really sad, but that is what happened. This is one of the things you hear from insiders. That was a deliberate attempt, like the idea of giving them blankets coated with smallpox. These people are sick, and they need to be stopped. And what they've been doing is unconscionable. So in the late 1890s, because they owned this railroad, people were having dirigibles, these flying balloons with motors on them, a lot more advanced than anything we saw out in the open, landing and people coming out who were speaking German and talking to people just randomly landing. And, and now it's like, oh, it's a UFO sighting. No, no, no. This was their early space program. All right. So how do I go exit out of this now? And how do I get back to the presentation? Let's go back to keynote. Oh, there it is. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, that was just David Wilcock um, talking about that. What year was that presentation? Uh, 2018. I was actually in the audience during that. I was at Contact that year. So Okay, so we have 1890. We have an ET alliance shadow government et shadow government alliance in the 1890s we have the these zeppelins these dirigibles showing up with german speak speaking people coming out um approaching the native americans so we know that there's some sort of technology already obviously what the u.s was doing and what the germans were doing were com two completely different things back then but either way this is more evidence of a very early space program and then we know in 1901 and 1911 the germans visit antarctica and they spent two years each. They spent two years each visit. So 1901, they were in Antarctica for two years, and the same goes for 1911. But what were they looking for? Why were they going there so early? Um, the official reason was for scientific exploration. The team consisted of uh, zoologist, bo zoologist, botanist, physician, bacteriologist, geologist chemist, meteorologist, and an expert on terrestrial magnetism. They established a base, a base in 1901, and then they returned in 1911. So this, what you're looking at here, is actually a copy of National Geographic magazine, August 1901, that talks about the Germans visiting Antarctica back then. So we have record we have evidence here that the germans did this this isn't just hearsay and i would love to get an actual copy of this to to be able to read it but regardless we have to wonder what they were doing in antarctica um obviously we think they were looking for a good place to set up shop or they were making deals with reptilians i mean who knows at that time exactly what was going on so then we have the story of Carl Haushofer. In 1909, if you guys don't know who he is, there's a lot of information on him, even on Wikipedia. But uh, the Journey to Planet Serpo book talks a lot about him. But in uh, 1909, so he's a German politician who travels to Japan in 1909 and is invited into the Tibetan Monastery of the Society of Green Men 
aka the Green Dragon Society, which is a faction of the Black Dragon Society. This is where he learns of a 5,000 year plan to take over the world in 1909. And these societies claim to be channeling a a subterranean reptilian race that lived underground in Tibet. So they were getting information from this underground race of reptilians. Obviously, this is why they named their societies after them, the Dragon Society. For some reason, Karl Haushofer was given permission to go over there and learn of this 5,000-year plan. He said he said that the green men decide that an alliance with Germans would help them reach their 50th century goals. So there was already a plan back in 1909 being made with the humans, the, the Germans and the reptilians and the uh, Green and Black Dragon Society to take over the planet, to take over the earth. Um, Karl Haushofer comes back with the gift of foresight and tales of an underground reptilian civilization. He, they gave him the gift of foresight so he can go back to World War I, and he impressed everyone. He was able to tell them what was going to happen next. Um, to sum this up, because we have a lot to get through, he eventually becomes Hitler's handler, and he grooms Hitler into power. And the interesting thing is, is that Hitler ended up taking over. Hitler, I guess his ego, his own greed, uh, consumed him. And he ended up, even when he created the concentration camps, he actually put Karl Haushofer and his family in the concentration camp, the very guy that even made Hitler who he was. And apparently Hitler became so power hungry that he actually foiled their plan. And he was actually pissed off a lot of the reptilians and everything because he was kind of going off on his own at this point. Um, he went rogue. Basically. He went He went rogue, yeah. yeah. Um, and then there is literature that says Karl Haushofer ended up in Inner Earth, um, which I, if I added all that, we'd be here forever. We're going to be here forever anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a long interview. Um, and make sure we check the uh, chat for any questions. And then... Okay, so that's 1909. We know that uh, this all happened in 1909. So we're not even <laughs> barely into the century, and we have so much already. 1970, 1917, Maria Orsic channels UFO blueprints from ETs from Aldebaran, powered by Vril Energy. Remember the Vril Energy, the infinite source of power that we talked about earlier that was discovered by the Germans uh, from the subterranean race called the Aryans. And this was the birth of the first German-made UFO. And just a little bit about the Vril Society. So the Vril Society was a secret society made up of four women. They claimed to have kept their hair long in order to act as an antenna to telepathically channel communication with alien races. And just a little bit more about them, just because uh, not everyone is familiar with the Vril Society. So, the Vril Society is a mysticism physical movement created by Maria Orsic, a medium and founder of the Vril Society, and based upon messages she claimed to have received from ETs from Aldebaran or AlphaTauri, which contained technical data and precise instructions on how to build a super out of this world flying machine, a UFO. The extraterrestrials Arian from Aldebaran told Maria that they were here before thousands of years ago and people took them for gods. The objective of the Vril was to acquire knowledge about Vril energy through psychic means. 
and to disclose pertinent information to Thule or Tool, however you want to say that, in the interest, interest of the Nazi party. Thus came the development of the Munich device called the, whatever that says, the JFM, <laughs> JFM. other world flying machine. This was the very first Nazi UFO which was apparently constructed in 1922. And this information, guys, can be found in this book right here. Um, Dale Deberon Vril, 1917 Extraterrestrial Messages to Maria Orsic and the Birth of the First German-Made UFO. <clears throat> if you guys are interested in that book. And next, here's just some pictures of these Hanabu, some of these early models of the Vril flying saucers. Allegedly, depending on who you talk to, some of these are actual real photographs. Um, obviously the internet, anything can be fake nowadays, but as far as we know, some of these might be real. And this slide is just for fun. Um, somebody says she is still alive. Is referring to Maria Orsic? Could be. Yeah, she could be. I wouldn't doubt it. So, um, here we have Hitler, obviously uh, this picture of Hitler. So Hitler had signed treaties with several hostile galactic civilizations and agreed to exchange humans for the alien research of extremely advanced ufo propulsion and particle beam weapons to exchange humans so we have we know about the human trafficking we hear about the galactic slave trade the secret space programs this is early evidence of humans being traded yeah. for um et tech and you know when, when humans are traded what are they using us for how is it done? What technologies were involved? This is something uh, we have to think about. Early, again, early evidence of all the stuff we talk about now. 1929, Admiral Byrd visits Antarctica. This is the first of five trips. And we all have heard about Admiral Byrd's diary, which he claims to have visited inner Earth, uh, had a meeting with their council, came back with a message for humanity. Uh, he was told never to talk about it again. That if you read, you can find his diary online. Billy Woodard, who worked at Area 51, claims to have been assigned to reading Admiral Byrd's diary. Told it was in fact, he was told it was in fact true, uh, because when he read it, he did, he wasn't sure. But um, that was his first assignment to familiarize himself with the diary. So, did Bird visit Inner Earth? It's very possible. Um, but why was he going to Antarctica also in 1929? This is something else to consider. And then we establish, he establishes Little America in 1929. So it, it sounds like the U.S. also had plans uh, brewing down in Antarctica at the same time the Germans did. There was a lot more happening there at that time than anyone was aware of. A lot of activity for a plain old boring ice wall. And then, so 1938, the Germans established New Schwabenland um, in Antarctica. They wanted Admiral Byrd to actually lead the trip because they weren't familiar with the terrain like he was. So they wanted him to help be their guide. He knew what they were. He wasn't in alignment with their mission. So he refused to go, according to what we researched. But he did agree to advise the members of the team. So he was actually advising the Germans before they went to Antarctica officially in 1938, where they set up New Schwabenland, which was named after 
the research vessel and our new Swabia. Here's a spot on the map of where it would be in Antarctica. This is an old map of, and you can't see on this map, it's really shitty, but it even shows like a lot of outposts and things that they had set up, at least on the surface, even though we know they were doing stuff underground. And then here is a picture of the vessel, the Schwabenland, that actually went to Germany and or Germany, Antarctica in 1938. The purpose of the mission was to claim an area of land to protect the German whaling industry. That was the mainstream narrative for them going, the mainstream purpose. We have any questions yet? <clears throat> no, but Drumpa says, I have some of the real Nazi bell craft floating, but tied to ground with metal chains. And he says, picks. Yeah, I've seen some of that stuff, but I don't know. It's hard to come across now. Um, don't worry, Cranky Pants, McGee. Um, <laughs> uh, you can always go back and rewatch this. You can always go back and rewatch this. It's going to be available uh, for free on our channel as long as it stays up. And okay, so what do we have next? <clears throat> so we're we're in 1938. So 1939, World War II starts right after the Germans have already developed New Schwabenland. Coincidentally, a year later, World War II starts, and this is when we hear of William Tompkins' testimony about the Navy spies who were sent over to Germany. Um, William Tompkins served with the Naval Intelligence from 1942 to 1945, directly participating in intelligence debriefings of Navy agents embedded within Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany's most secret aerospace facilities. So if you've listened to any of his testimony, um, it's pretty profound what was happening back then. They were coming back with intelligence, talking about the Germans building these amazing free energy UFOs, these flying discs. Uh, they were they were even bringing back schematics and blueprints that weren't even in a, like an earthly language. They had no idea what it meant. Um, so during World War II, we had um, a lot of information coming from Germany about their early space program. And then this was the very early days of the U.S. space program, I would imagine. Did you want to add anything about that? <clears throat> no. Let's keep going. All right. So this is going quicker than I thought. That's good, though. Slide 26 of 154. I mean, maybe not. Got quite a bit. <laughs> well, well the, the last half, I'm not going to go through some of that because that was part of an earlier thing. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So 1939. World War II starts. Um, we have William Tompkins' testimony that speaks of the German spies or the Nazi, uh, Navy spies bringing back um, information about the Germans developing UFOs. And we already had information about that from the Vril Society Maria Orsic. So 1942, this is during World War II, we have the Battle of L.A., the Battle of Los Angeles, also known as the Great L.A. Air Raid, is the name given by the contemporary sources to a rumored attack on the continental United States by Imperial Japan. So there is this whole Wikipedia definition, right? Um, we also have William Tompkins' testimony that tells a different story of the Battle of L.A., which he says, huge motherships were spotted along with, hang on. I got to read it from this one. Huge motherships were spotted along with the large mass sighting of unknown aircraft ever recorded. Largest, that's supposed to say largest, mass sighting of 
aircraft ever recorded. It went on for five hours. So basically hundreds of massive naval space battle fleet ships hovering 8,000 feet above the motherships. So what he said was there was these gigantic motherships that showed up over LA and we had all of our battle cruisers, like our, um, uh, what am I trying, battleships mm-hmm. in the ocean firing at this fleet of ships. And then, but he also says that the naval space fleet there was a naval space fleet from another part of the galaxy that was parked above them that was attacking them from above. So this is from an early uh, a space program from another part of the galaxy, according to uh, William Tompkins. So whatever these motherships were over L.A., they were being fired on from above and below. The naval space armada was obviously from this part of the Milky Way galaxy, but they weren't from Earth, according to William Tompkins. Um, he said the space vehicles were under fire from above and below. And then he says that the area was crop dusted with chemicals in an attempt to erase the sighting from the witness memories. And he goes into details about this, but basically this was an early, uh, early evidence of chemtrails being used to help to make people forget the sighting that they just saw. So they knew there's obviously it was written about in the papers. People knew about it, but the mass amount of ships that was actually in the air at the time, they didn't, they were trying to, I guess, keep a lid on it as best they could. And did you want to add any more about this? Um, no, I mean, it, it, um, it basically in this book, I believe he says like all, all of LA could see it. And, and in fact, like most of Southern California could see it and went on like all night, five hours, like 5am. Yeah. I think he said in the book. And, uh, there were even like deaths from from the falling uh bullets and stuff you know because they shot they unloaded just like right the, the, sh- the shrapnel that was falling i mean there was like that was actually right killing people right and he said that whatever they were spraying the area with he he said some people looked like zombies like they were just completely zoned out whatever chemical was being pumped in the air and a lot of people don't remember the details. And, and the craft they were and the craft they were firing at was just <laughs> absorbing everything. Not did not affect it in the slightest. <laughs> so yeah. So there you go. Like clearly, you know, that was not something known that we can explain. That was hovering for hours over LA. Right. Okay. So that, yeah. So then that was. But they were firing it. So clearly, like they didn't know what it was and they thought it was a threat and they're firing at it. Um, and this just goes to me, this reinforces the compartmentalization of everything because if, if you want to say like, Oh, all the military knows it's like, well, they wouldn't have done that if they would have known what it actually was, you know? And then clearly they didn't actually know what it was and they thought it was a threat and they're firing at it all night. And then here's a, nothing happened. Here's photographs from it. And then here's even this guy's car that show, um, evidence of damage from right. from the sky battle you, you can't say yeah right. and and they would they try to say it was just like um oh they they said a rumored attack you know by imperial japan yeah They're, yeah so uh, there's so much more going on at that time but either way this is 1942 again um something that gets kind of breezed over sometimes yeah and then we have after that this we also have the food fighters oh they tried to say it was a false alarm like yeah we just fired all night 
nonstop used all our ammo on a, a false alarm. alarm. <laughs> like that makes sense. I'm gonna use the uh, restroom real quick. If Nothing you want to, to talk see about the flu. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'll talk about. It. So during World War II, um, yeah, pilots were seeing these balls of light flying around and following their craft and maneuvering around them in ways that aren't supposed to be possible. And we didn't know what they were and we were freaked out by it. So we assumed it was the enemy's um, secret craft or something. And they were nicknamed Foo Fighters, which that name comes from a comic strip uh, that was popular at the time. And uh, yeah, so tons of our allied pilots were reporting seeing these things. And most of them thought they were secret weapons of of the Germans or the enemy. Um, there were bright glowing lights and the US government has still to this day never offered an explanation for what they were. And well, other than they try to say it must have been weather anomalies, ball lightning, blah, 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 you know, go down the list or enemy aircraft just mistaken, you know, for whatever. But clearly, like these are trained pilots that know how to spot, you know, <laughs> like they're not going to be re reporting balls of glowing light following their craft. Like clearly they were they were an unknown. They were UFOs. They were some kind of advanced uh, craft, whether it was ET or whether it was secret, and yes, that's where the craft that was ET technology given to them because they didn't just develop that on their own. It was clearly, yeah, not what they were a military test saying. balloon. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so anyway, so that was all during World War II for for like four or five years at least um, during the war, and then uh, that is where the Foo Fighters got their band name, and that is where the band got their name. Yes. Dave Grohl apparently is a big UFO guy. A lot of there's a book out there called Alien Rock. It talks about all the musicians who had their own ET experiences, abductions, sightings. Um, most of the famous, popular musicians have all had their uh, all had their stories, including like Kurt mm -hmm. Cobain. That's right. Yeah. Elvis, Michael mm -hmm. Jackson, the Beatles. Um, I mean, they're all in there. Yeah which is an interesting side note. Okay, so this one is kind of out of the timeline, but I think it's fascinating because it's a real photograph. So this this picture was taken by a couple in Carlsbad, California, and analyzed by specialists at Northrop in San Diego, California, and released by William Tompkins. William Tompkins looked at this photo when it made its way to his office, and he knew exactly what, they, what he was looking at. Um, this is a close-up image, according to William Tompkins. This is a close-up image of a 900-foot-long reptilian tanker found to be dispensing a mixture of four gases over Oceanside and Carlsbad, California. These gases are used for mind control of the population and the, disturbant, or the disbursement of viruses, a.k.a. reptilian contrails. So he says that the 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 people that took this picture did they had no idea they didn't see these in the sky yeah do you want to explain why that is yeah yeah i'm yeah. going to okay yeah. so they didn't see these this just showed up back back then when you had to actually go and have your film developed when it was developed they noticed these but they all claimed that they didn't see these with their naked eye and that was william Tompkins said that they have cloaking technology 
um, that keeps us from seeing it. But for whatever reason, the technology that kept cameras from picking it up wasn't turned on or so, wasn't enabled. So they had two different, I guess, switches, one that keeps people people from seeing the craft and one that keeps cameras from seeing the craft or picking up the craft. And they forgot to switch on the one that kept cameras from picking it up. And that's how this guy. So this guy took this photo, not seeing anything at all and with his eyes. But then this is what turned up in the photo. Right. And according to Tompkins, as soon as he saw it, he knew what it was. He called it a reptilian tanker. Mm -hmm. And he says that these colors coming out of the back of it are four different gases that are used to basically mind control us. So if these things have been flying around invisibly cloaked for years, and I don't know when this photo was taken. I'm sorry. I don't know when it was taken. I'm sure I could go back through William Tompkins' testimony and books and maybe get a get an idea. Regardless, there's a lot more about this also in his books and testimonies. We're just breezing through this. Um, but it's interesting because as far as anyone knows, these are legitimate photographs. They have not been proven uh, wrong or debunked. So that is a reptilian tanker. And he he explains yeah. he explains a little more about the craft. He explains what all these serrations mean, mm -hmm. and like, and you can even see like the different colors and the gas. Right, like, that's interesting. Right. Okay, so here we are, 1945, after the war. G the Germans flee to Antarctica, Argentina. This is when Operation Paperclip happens. We have uh, evidence that the Germans even went to the moon and Mars at this time. Hitler wasn't dead. He went to he went to um, Argentina as well, possibly Antarctica. So there's a lot of information at this time. Do, do we know what year? No, that's why I said. We don't know the exact. Yeah. Do you know the decade? Was it like 50s, 60s? Couldn't. I don't know. And from how that picture looks, I would say maybe 60s, but we don't know exactly. Yeah. 60s or 70s, maybe. Right. Um, but we're not sure. So, so, all right. So we had World War II happen. Um, obviously, all the stuff we talked about, the Navy spies, discovering what the Germans were up to. And then now in 1945, a ton happens. Um, we have evidence of the Germans, like I said, fleeing to Antarctica and Argentina. And with the, how they were getting to Argentina was uh, the Red Cross that was actually at that time, that building was right next to the Vatican. Uh, they created the Red these Red Cross visas, these illegal visas that let Nazis out of the country. And it gave them... Uh, admission into Argentina through the Catholic Church, where they were given a new identity. They were um, wiped clean of all their sins uh, and given a new name and a new life, a clean slate to start a new life in, in Argentina. Uh, so the Red Cross was guilty for actually aiding the Nazis in the escape of because the Germany. Red, because the Red Cross was established by the cabal. Right. It's not what they claim to be, you know, as many which that information is like, you can even Google the stuff about the Red Cross visas and the Nazis going to Argentina and all that stuff. Apparently, um, there's a, uh, that's where Hitler went as well. And, um, yeah. you know, German secret societies colonized Mars in the 40s, according to um, information that Dr. Sala has shared. Um, what we're looking at here is potentially a real photograph. We don't know depending on who you talk to again, but a swastika shaped base was built on the backside of the moon. And it was later built out. It was later yeah. built out and taken over by, I guess the U S space programs, if I understand that correctly. Um, 
I provided this just to show that the swastika wasn't just a Nazi thing. This showed up all over the world and from ancient times. It's an ancient. That's where they got the symbol. Right. It's a very and ancient. Just yeah. like everything else, it's been hijacked. The Nazis built a swastika-shaped base on the dark side of the moon between 1938 and 45. Dates vary depending on insider whistleblower. What is what does the swastika <laughs> look like though? Look at a galaxy with the spiral arms. Right. And then look at a swat. It's right. I've seen it like also depicted like it's a, the the big dipper, like in all the cycles. Oh yeah. Like yeah. Um, so there's so many different it, it could, it's different. it's representative of astrological alignments or something. Yeah. Maybe all maybe it's representative of all those things. So again, no one can go to the move moon and prove this, but this we do there's a lot of information that uh lends to the possibility that the Germans did make it to the moon back in the 40s, maybe even the late uh, 30s and even to Mars, um, which I should have included yeah. the, the Google Mars photos. So in another presentation, I don't if I don't know if you'll find it anymore. Oh, really? You can try. What do I, what should I Google? Google, Google Mars base, April Fool's prank or something like that. Oh, yeah. Remember that. Yeah. But it wasn't actually... Um, that it yeah, yeah that's it but i'll have to pull it up and send it to you yeah send it to me so man actually you know what let me just pull up my other presentation sorry guys please hold <laughs> please hold the problem is i can't get my cursor back onto I'll this drop it to you. other monitor oh that's what i have to do i have to switch that back Okay, except opening photos. Okay. It's the one thing we missed. Right. So anyway, there we go. Okay, go back to um, YouTube, make sure that they can see this. Sorry about that, guys. So this could be fake, might be fake. Either way, this showed up on Google Mars on, I don't even, I, see, I wish I had could pull up my other, oh, wait, I might was, be. It was like a few years ago. When was it? Um, in, the, in the teen 2000s. Um, okay. E either way, uh, this showed up on Google Mars. They tried to say it was a prank. Uh, this is they tried uh, to say it was an April Fool's joke, but it did actually wasn't found in on April at all. It was found like months later. Right, so that doesn't even make sense. Um, right. I went back to the exact coordinates of this place on Google Mars, and I found a blotched out square that was completely out of place, mm -hmm. like a dark square, which I had the photo in the other presentation um, of the exact coordinates of this alleged prank. Um, regardless, there's no way to prove whether this was real or not. Um, it's interesting though, because Could be, though. when you type in the exact coordinates that this came from, you see this big, like ugly square that's just completely right. out of so place. My question is why do they have a square that's clearly, you know, they're hiding something with that. Right. Um, kind of like on Google earth when you, when you find little squared out things, right. like they're, they're clearly hiding stuff. Right. Right. Okay. So moving on, you guys have all heard of Operation Paperclip. If you haven't, here's a brief synopsis. Now you will. 
Operation Paperclip was a secret United States intelligence program in which more than 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians were taken from former Nazi Germany to the U.S. for government employment after the end of World War II in Europe between 1945 and 1959. Conducted by the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, it was largely carried out by special agents of the U.S. Army's Counter Counterintelligence Corps. Many of these personnel... Corps. You don't pronounce it. That's... Oh, yeah. Corps. <laughs> well, whatever. Corps. Yeah, this... Corps. Corps. <laughs> uh, um, and many of these personnel were former members and some were former leaders of the Nazi party. And this is where there's the whole argument that we didn't actually win World War II, because if we did, why would we allow 1600 German scientists, engineers and technicians that were leaders of the Nazi party to come in and infiltrate our infrastructure? Basically, um, every organization um, in the United States was infiltrated. And we had German personnel, Nazi personnel. So, and one of those people was Warner von Braun, who uh, worked for NASA, yep. who yep. headed up NASA. Yep. And uh, that a literal Nazi headed up NASA. Right. <laughs> uh, NASA was a Nazi creation. Like that's that's a historical fact. And that's what people don't know. And well, it's a lot a, of people don't know. And we'll get into NASA here in a little bit because there's a lot to get through still. Okay, so at the same time, Operation, however you say this, Tabarin. Tabarin. So Operation Tabarin 1 and 2, British soldiers discover a German base in Antarctica in 1945. Um, actually, 1944, technically. But so if you guys don't know about this, it's a very interesting story. Uh, most people don't know this happened right at the end of World War II. So while Operation Paperclip was taking place, the uh, British was actually discovering um, the German bases in Antarctica. So in 1908, uh, the British claimed a sector of the South Pole in 1908. So they already had a base established down there way mm -hmm. back when the Germans were there early. And what they were doing there is anyone's guess. Uh, but they learned... The British soldiers learned about an entrance to the Nazi base in Antarctica from three captured Nazis in 1945. Uh, there's a lot more about this. There's an entire book written on this, guys. Um, there's other books that reference this, but uh, we're going to breeze through it and just give you the main bullet points for the sake of this presentation. So a team of 30 men went to explore. Uh, they discovered a tunnel system so vast that they had to split up. They discovered massive underground Nazi establishment, U-boat port and hangars for exotic craft. Um, the, the there's team, only one survivor. There's only one survivor. The team was actually captured, and uh, one survivor made it out and ended up making it back to the British base. And the survivor reported the incredible discovery, and he told them how the others died. So a second team was established. This time they had a more strategic approach. And the results were reported to Truman. So I'm going to briefly read through um, some of what they discovered. Any questions? No? Pretty light on the questions. I think people are just enjoying the All right, presentation. Yeah. So here's an ex excerpt from uh, Serpo. Secret journey to Planet Serpo. So they followed the tunnel for miles, and eventually they came to a vast underground cavern that was abnormally warm. Some of the scientists believed that it was warm geothermally, 
in the huge cavern were underground lakes. However, the mystery deepened. As the cavern was lit artificially, the cavern proved so extensive that they had to split up. And that was then, or, or that was when the real discoveries were made. The Nazis had constructed a huge base into the caverns and had even built docks for U-boats. And one was identified supposedly oh, and one was identified one of the u-boats was identified supposedly still the deeper they traveled the more strange visions they were greeted with the survivor reported that hangars for strange planes and excavations galore had been documented <clears throat> um for five hours they explored for five hours they entered an enormous cavern illuminated by artificial lighting and his account the sas agent says as we looked over the entire cavern network, we were overwhelmed by the numbers of personnel scurrying about like ants. But what was impressive was the huge constructions that were being built. From what we were witnessing, the Nazis, from what we were, sorry, from what we were witnessing, the Nazis, it appeared, had been in Antarctica a long time. He says what was very, uh, he says he was very impressed by the advanced Nazi technology. The team was discovered and fought a heroic engagement while being chased after setting the mines in place. So they actually blew up the entrance. They came in and this is, uh, so this is talking about the second mission back, the second trip back. So they, uh, on the, that, uh, they were discovered on the second one and only three survived that time. So only three survived the encounter, but they had succeeded in detonating massive explosions at the mouth of the tunnel and sealing it so that the entrance remained uh, sealed. After being evacuated to the Falkland Islands, the three survivors were told that their mission was to remain top secret. So the SAS agent says, upon reaching Georgia, we were issued with a directive that we were forbidden to reveal what we had seen, heard, or even encountered. And apparently this is what prompted Operation High Jump. So, Clearly, the United States did find out about Operation Tiberian, either by covert intelligence operations or by deliberate intelligence sharing by the British. The latter seems more likely because the British were probably convinced that they had not succeeded in destroying the base and wanted the U.S. to finish the job. So yeah. that's where Operation High Jump comes so in. So the whole purpose of High Jump was to finish destroying the Nazi bases in Antarctica. It was not, but the cover story was, it was an exploration right, yeah. mission only, which is BS. Like it may, it makes no sense to send what they sent there if it was an exploration right. mission. So then that was 19, so, so we have Operation Tiberian 1 and 2 in 1945. They discovered, the British discovered a Nazi base. Mm -hmm. um, that intel is leaked to President Truman, who then orders Admiral Byrd uh, uh, to lead Operation High Jump in 1946. And you can read this if you want. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So it said Operation High Jumps, 46, 47. So publicly, it's supposed to be an exploration mission. In reality, it was to take out the Germans' base in Antarctica. So it was supposed to last six months. And they, they came back after only two months because they got their butts kicked because little did they know the Germans had very advanced technology advanced craft that they we to that point knew very little to nothing about and you know so we show up trying uh, hey we're gonna take out their base and there's these flying craft uh come out just just destroying us basically um and that's when admiral bird uh so when he came back, Admiral Burt, you know, they came back after only two months, way, way shorter than it was supposed to be. 
um, with way less people, you know, the people that survived. And Admiral Byrd, like, was interviewed after that and gave a statement. He basically said he was freaked out, and you could tell um, because he's like, oh, crap, if they have this kind of technology, we're defenseless against this. Like, they could take over the world if they wanted to, you know, essentially. And this is a quote. So he basically um he warned about well i have the actual full quote in the next yeah, slide. The yeah. okay yeah so we'll craft that could fly from pole to pole at incredible speeds because he right. that's what he witnessed so uh, there so so yeah 46 to 47 operation hydro and 4700 marines sent to antarctica confronted by ufos they ended four months early and i just had to end add this part just for the flat earthers admiral bird encircled the continent in two different directions before the attack how do you encircle a, an ice wall? A kind of, How do you encircle yeah. an ice wall? Right. Um, you don't. This, the, these are the, all of this information we're sharing is the type of stuff that either flat earther, earthers don't know about or they just choose to ignore um, when they're creating their theories. Uh, and we're not here attacking flat earthers. Unless, you, is, unless like the ice wall would encircle the whole planet unless you're saying they like went along the entire ice right. wall i guess you could say that uh, but just that an interesting take... side note when i was reading they specifically said that they encircled the continent in two different directions before the attack right, um right. so here is the actual quote um admiral bird declared today that it was imperative for the united states to initiate immediate defense measures against hostile regions furthermore bird stated that he didn't want to frighten anybody anyone unduly but that it was a bitter reality that in case of a new war, the continent, continental United States would be attacked by flying objects which could fly pole to pole at incredible speeds. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, here we have Bird reporting back on the exact technology we just got done explaining that, we, that had been developed since the 1800s. And the interesting timing is that what was shortly after that well, that's what we're yeah, getting at we're in 14. So this is that's when uh, Bird on March 5th, 1947, that came out in the newspaper um, that he actually said that. So that's when it made it to the papers. But before we get there, this is something little known um, immediately following high jump. The next year in um, 47 also same year roswell all this stuff happens operation windmill operation windmill i don't know if you guys have heard of this was a follow-up much smaller exercise the following year an important part which was to obtain ground reference references for the seventy thousand aerial photographs taken during high jump the previous year helicopters were used extensively hence the name windmill so that was the public reason for going back in 1947 was to go get ground references for the 70,000 aerial photographs taken during high jump. That means there are 70,000 <laughs> photographs out there of that's whatever happened a lot of photographs. that we have never seen. Yeah. Um, but knowing what actually happened, they weren't going back to just get ground references for the photos. This mission, I don't who knows what the real purpose for this mission was. Either way, they're trying to find out exactly what the Germans had in Antarctica right. extensively. Like they're trying to like we we need to know exactly what's there. And this is the same time we have the UFOs. And this is when uh, the UFOs start showing up over all the nuclear facilities mm -hmm. um, in the 40s. They start showing up. Yep. And 
this is just important to note. We'll get into um, some more specifics on this a little later, but just it, mainstream science recognizes that there's at least 12 measurable dimension, dimensions, depending on which scientist you subscribe to. So either way, they're, they're admitting that dimensions are real, that it, dimensions mm -hmm. exist. And we have information out there from a lot of people that say, when you let off an atomic device, you're killing people in other dimensions that you can't see. Maybe ETs yeah. know something that we it's don't. It's not just affecting <clears throat> our dimension. It's affecting many other ones. So they're not going to allow. It's not. It's for multiple reasons that they're, they're not going to allow us to destroy ourselves, us to destroy the planet, and us to destroy and affect beings and many things in other dimensions that we know nothing about. So we're kind of like these little ignorant children that are playing with machine guns right. and bombs that we have no and, idea and what we're doing. Every, like, we're going to, we're going to stop you guys. <laughs> and every planet is connected via the cosmic web, which web, which is a portal system. Right. And the effects of that effect. atomic blast will travel through that portal system and affect other planets. Who as knows? Well. Yeah. Not just else. other dimensions, but other planets. So that's why they're parking above these facilities shutting them down because this isn't just about destroying ourselves. We have no idea the implications of letting off an atomic bomb. So the good news about that is that there, there is not going to be nuclear war because it's not going to be allowed. And they've been for decades and decades, they've been shutting down nuclear facilities and stopping us from using nukes. Right. So um, whenever we hear that narrative, so that's just fear mongering whenever uh, Whenever they're putting that out in the media, you're like, oh, nuclear war. Thanks, Tyler, for the it's not inconvenient happen. info. Sorry. <laughs> um, the inconvenient info? Yeah. Well, I mean, sorry for the inconvenience. So it's, we need to know this. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's sorry. Funny. He's just laughing about it. Uh, um, it's Greg Herrera. Um, okay, so next, you know, we all know about Roswell, which Aaron uh, went into extensively. Yeah. Um, okay. For the sake of people who don't know it. Um, but before Roswell, uh, Roswell wasn't the first UFO crash. These are just some of the documented crashes. In 1938, at the invit invitation of Benito Mussolini, German scientists were allowed to examine the remains of a UFO that was recovered in 1933 near the small town of Moderno in northern Italy. So we have evidence of a UFO wreck in 1933 in Italy that was allowed to be examined by German scientists in 1938, which is interesting to note because of what we knew what was happening back then with the Vril Society and the Karl Haushofer information and um, all that. So then in 1941, the U.S. Navy found a disc in the Pacific West of San Diego, um, another wrecked UFO. There was a UFO crash that's not very well known about here in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, about an hour, hour and a half. Hour and a half south of here. From us yeah, really in 1941. Close. Um, there was also another crash in uh, before Roswell in 1947, a UFO crash in the plains of St. Augustine, New Mexico. And then, do you want to read this or I can read it? Doesn't matter. Read it, yeah. So this is information about the cra the crash in Augustine, New Mexico, 1947, May 31st before Roswell. Yeah. So the alien craft was resting on its roof, still smoking when the military arrived. Four aliens were on the ground, three alive and one dead. Bob Shell, the former editor of Shutterbug magazine and the military cameraman assigned to film the scene, reported that each of the live aliens was tightly grasping a box and making shrieking noises. He said they looked like circus freaks. Two of the three surviving aliens were injured and died within three weeks, at which point the cameraman was called upon to film an autopsy of one of the creatures in Fort Worth, Texas. This ultimately became the famous Santilli autopsy film, which we'll talk about later. 
As can be seen in the film, these aliens appeared almost human, although smaller, and had six fingers and toes on their otherwise human-looking hands and feet. The alien craft and bias were taken to Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, I can go to the next. What? Um, so oh, yeah. pick this guy up. Um, right. So we have evidence of a wreck with actual alien bodies before, before Roswell, May thirty-first. Ros Roswell happened in June. Um, there's another site, another UFO crash in Aztec, New Mexico in 1948, um, where they recovered a UFO and 16 of its occupants. And we'll get in. There was actually a photograph from that wreck that we'll get into in a later um, slide. But apparently that that wreck had a lot more witnesses than Roswell. And there's a lot more information about the Aztec, New Mexico wreck. And actually right here. Uh, they're not going to be able to see it because of unless you switch back to unless, but it's, yeah. i'm not going to what because it doesn't matter um what i'm holding here is a soil sample from the ufo wreck site in aztec new mexico this was gifted to me i actually had um the mufon lab investigate this analyze it and they found very very little traces of radiation yep um but that's it. The, other than that, it's pretty much just, you know, soil. Mm -hmm. But this is a soil sample from that wreck site, allegedly. So this was gifted to me by somebody very synchronistically. And uh, I actually just had a dream about this soil sample last night, which was interesting. And here we are talking about it. Um, I had a dream that someone tried to come steal this, like it was some, like, really important Top evidence. Yeah. Thing, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and then... So this is this is the difference between Aaron and I about Roswell. So this was my slide well, about. Well, I mean, I'm I'm like that about Roswell too, but right. I just I wanted to go deep into it. Um, so. so we all know about Roswell, but Aaron makes a great point on why we need to actually dive a little deeper because um, there's a lot of smoking gun evidence because so many people have been researching it for so long. There's it's there's almost a, undeniable. There's just so much evidence and so um, much information on it that if you just research that one crashed that one incident um it will prove to yourself you can prove to yourself that it's you know et it's not from here and it happened it's not what they're right. telling us well you so, can you can fly through. and that there is a cover-up in place and all that so it's it's you know it's a really good uh especially for people that don't know about any of this stuff and aren't have no clue about any of this stuff like just tell them to research roswell and like come back to you you know and uh, their mind will be blown if they actually truly research it so anyways uh kenneth arnold this was before roswell a little bit um in 1947 he was a pilot he reported seeing nine objects glowing bright blue white flying in a v formation over mount rainier in washington uh he estimated their flight speed at 1700 miles an hour which is way way beyond anything that is supposed to be possible uh, said they moved like a saucer if you skipped it across the water. And that's where the term flying saucer came from because the newspapers then mistakenly reported that he saw flying saucers um, when in fact he just said it moved like a saucer skipping across water. Initially thought they were military aircraft test flights, but the military later said they hadn't been conducting any tests during that time. So they couldn't have been. And all right so now we're getting into roswell so july 3rd or that date's not exact it's somewhere around that time when the crash 
happened, um, but it was discovered at that date or around that date by um, a rancher named Mac Brazel uh, on a ranch about 75 miles outside of Roswell that was close to Corona, New Mexico. Uh, so he noticed that his sheep were, weren't crossing a part of their grazing land. They were stopping seemingly for no reason. He didn't know why. And he investigated it and he found all this strange debris. Um, he found metallic debris spread along the hillsides and a huge gouge in the earth. And the pieces of metal that he found were pliable, very light, and they reverted back to their original shape after they, you could crunch them into a ball and they would revert back to their original shape. Um, so clearly this is some advanced, not memory foam, but memory, <laughs> memory foil. Right. This is in 1947 too. So think about that. Uh, some had odd markings on them that he couldn't make out what they were. Uh, he took samples of a lot of this debris into town and to, I believe Roswell, it was on July 6th, presented them at the sheriff's office. Uh, two deputies were immediately ordered to the crash site to investigate. And so the next day, the Roswell Army Airfield made a statement, made a public statement saying they recovered the remains of a flying disc. And they said that exact thing. They said flying disc. Um, so there were many rumors regarding the flying disc it became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County, Major Jesse Marcel and Captain Sheridan Cavett followed Brazel back to his ranch to inspect and collect the debris, which they took to the base July 8th. And Marcel said it was nothing made of this earth, which, by the way, he said many, many times uh, he he would reiterate that it was not from this earth. It was not. It was an alien you know, craft. So he was convinced that it was not from here. So as reported in Roswell Daily Record on July 9th, Brazel told Sheriff Wilcox that he might have found a flying disc who told the RAAF who sent the intelligence officer, Major Marcel, and a man in plain clothes to his home where they picked up the rest of the pieces of the disc and went to his home to try to reconstruct it. They failed. Uh, the This case is unique because the media broke the story after getting... So by the way, this is from uh, Jean Broida, our friend Jean Broida's book, Unknown Objects. This is a direct... We had her on the show we had, back. We had her on the show a few years ago. She's, She's awesome. An excellent researcher. She is. Yeah, and this book is amazing, by the way. You can get it for like five bucks on Amazon, by the way. Uh, this case is unique because the media broke the story after getting a U.S. military press release. When the newspapers and other broadcast media began spreading the flying saucer story, the Air Force then retracted its official statement and issued a contradictory cover story. There's also evidence that eyewitnesses were pressured by the go by government agents to suppress or change their stories, which, of course, they were. Yeah, that's pretty obvious that that happened. Uh, so before he visited the Roswell Daily Record on July 9th, Brazel had already given two interviews. So one with uh, the Roswell radio station KGFL announcer Frank Joyce on the 6th, and then probably the next day on the 7th by Walt Whitmore, who owned that station. And he made a wire recording of Brazel's uncensored story and intended to broadcast it, but that never happened thanks to the U.S. military. The interview was meant to be aired as a scoop, but was never played on air. Unfortunately, the recording has been lost to us because it was confiscated by the Army on the afternoon of July 8th and never returned during their operation to kill the original disc retrieval story and remove all contrary evidence. So they they wanted to squash 
this whole disc story, all the evidence they wanted to anything they could do to cover it up, threaten people, you know, go down the list, say it was a weather balloon. Uh, so here's a photo of uh, General Ramey uh, holding a piece of paper in his hand. And for the longest time, no one could read it. No one could make out what it said until now with advanced, you know, with our technology now, uh, we were able to enhance the photo. And here's just part of what we're able to make out it says now and the victims of the wreck and the disc they will ship so clearly talks about a disc and a wreck uh and here's the full thing which just kind of which just kind of says disc many times and wreck and right. things that if it was just a weather balloon it wouldn't say <laughs> basically and clearly it was a disc of some kind and it was a it was a wreck and it was very important so we know those things for sure and when I first read this, I thought it said Dick Craze continues, but it says Dick. <laughs> it does not say Dick Craze. It says this. Disc Craze. <laughs> um, so the UFO wreckage was taken by the military. It was swapped out with weather balloon wreckage. It was swapped out with actual weather balloon wreckage because they needed to fit that cover story. So they actually swapped out the wreckage, gave that weather balloon wreckage to um, Major Marcel here in this photo. And that's what he's holding in the photo. And you see the look on his face. Like, are you serious right now? Like he's somebody's barking orders at him. He's looking up at him. Um, and the press is laughing at him because they can't believe a U.S. military intelligence officer somehow didn't know the difference between a crash UFO and a weather balloon. <laughs> but of course he did. He was just he was threatened and silenced and he couldn't, and he couldn't say the truth. Here's a quote from Marcel himself. So here's a direct quote from Marcel later on. This is actually from an episode of In Search Of. All I could do is keep my mouth shut. General Ramey is the one who told the newsman what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, we both knew differently. So he says they both knew differently. So General Thomas DuBose uh, was the highest ranking Air Force officer with direct knowledge of the Roswell case. He went on record about the weather balloon cover up, plus other important details about what was really happening and General Roger Ramey's inner circle. However, he was relegated to the role of a complete non-entity in the 1995 Air Force Roswell report, even though he was General Ramey's chief of staff in 1947 and had a great deal to say about what happened in recorded interviews and his affidavit. The Air Force didn't even identify DuBose in the photos taken uh, on July 8th, 1947, which they reproduced in their report, picturing him with General Ramey. Why the cold shoulder from the Air Force for this high-ranking officer? Well, quite simply because DuBose's statements contradicted the Air Force party line. He stated there was indeed a cover-up ordered from Washington. He said he personally took the phone call from General McMullen and that the weather balloon debris shown in the photos was not what was found at Roswell. It was indeed a cover story designed to get the press off their backs and put out the fire. DuBose insisted that even he never saw the actual Roswell debris, meaning that what was pictured in the photos was not the actual material covered near Roswell. And this is a quote from his affidavit. The material shown in the photographs taken in uh, Major General Ramey's office was a weather balloon. The weather balloon explanation for the material was a cover story to divert the attention of the press. Yep. And this is a memo from the Dowd Field office to the FBI. Uh, like all memos to the FBI at that time, it was addressed to Director J. Edgar Hoover, recorded in the ex-FBI records. Subject of the memo was anything but ordinary. It related a story to told to one of our agents by a third party who said an Air Force investigator had reported that three flying saucers were recovered in New Mexico. The memo provided the following detail. Three of them. 
three of them. So there was, and there's yeah. a lot of information. There was more than one wreck. There was more than just one, right? Right. Uh, they, the saucers, were described as being circular in shape with raised centers approximately 50 feet in diameter. Each one was occupied by three bodies of human shape, but only three feet tall, dressed in metallic cloth of a very fine texture. Each body was bandaged in a manner similar to the blackout suits used by speed, speed flyers and test pilots. After relaying the informant's claim, the saucers have been found because the government's high-powered radar in the area had interfered with the controlling mechanism of the saucers. So that's supposedly why they crashed because the uh, high-powered radar interfered with their controlling mechanism. I'm going to cut you up. Um, yeah, sorry, I messed up. Um, um, and then... Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Were you need to go back? I was just... Uh, no further evaluation was attempted concerning the matter by the FBI agent. Yeah, so that right. Was... And then this is what, a quick little clip? Of... Yeah, so this is just a little clip. Oh, wait. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I think I have to click it on this screen. No, it's not playing the clip. Um, Is it because we're doing the... That's weird. Nope. Oh, it's all good. It's not that important. It's just another clip basically uh, and, uh, summarizing everything. And then here, these are three different books that, I mean, tell you everything you need to know about Roswell. Yeah, I mean, so the first book there is the first one ever published on it in 1980, made a strong case for the Roswell crash having been a UFO, not a weather balloon due to the nature of the recovered materials, their wide dispersal and the behavior of the security conscious military. And there's been many books published since and those other two. So the Roswell incident, the day after Roswell and witness to Roswell, um, you know, and it's interesting. We This is the one that, you know, MUFON is still stuck on. And they talk about this all the time uh they can't get past it obviously there is a lot of smoking gun evidence here and maybe that's why mufon is stuck on it because they're mm -hmm. evidence-based mufon yeah because mufon is they're definitely more evidence-based more nuts and bolts and they're kind of like they their their prerogative is more to like prove that ufos are a real thing then, to the public to the right. mass public right so they kind of tend to get stuck on roswell get stuck on documents but on, we, kind of 3D. I guess we realize not everyone knows all the details of the Roswell story. So that it's, it's important. Still. Right. It's important to look into. Right. And, and then, so then 1947, it's interesting. We have Operation Tiberian and High Jump, then Roswell, 1947, uh, same year in September, right after Roswell, the Majestic 12 was formed. And according to David Wilcock, Carl Sagan was originally part of the original MJ-12. And you can tell what you know about that um as far as carl sagan um, yeah oh yeah yeah so, you don't have there's not a slide but no no but uh yeah so carl sagan apparently was was a part of mj12 secretly and he actually knew about ufos he knew they were real he knew ets were real he knew all this stuff was going on to a certain degree you know everything's compartmentalized he knew a certain degree of what was going on and it's funny because on the surface publicly he was a big debunker of ufos and and tried to make it you know oh there's no evidence and blah 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 you know uh and that's because he actually wanted to come out with this information he wanted to say hey this is real you know blah 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 but obviously they're not going to allow that you know <laughs> the cabal isn't going to allow that so they threatened him they silenced him they he's, said he's no you're going to say this and he he became a puppet if right. he ever wasn't he, he was a puppet of them and he was only allowed to say what they wanted him 
to say essentially. And then so. here is, according to John Lear, the John Lear report in 1987, which we'll get into uh, in a little bit here. Yeah. Um, Majestic 12, MJ12, or Magic are all forms of the code name for the control group authorized by President Truman on 9, September 24th, 1947. The director of the CIA is the director of the Majestic 12, MJ1. The control group was formed to oversee a top secret research and development and intelligence operation and was re responsible only to the president, President Truman. The need for this group was dictated by the finding of a down flying saucer scattered over two sites nearly uh, near the town of Roswell, New Mexico in July 1947. The dead bodies of four very small human-like aliens were also found. Majestic 12 is the most highly classified secret in the United States, and its existence has never been divulged to Congress. The funds for MJ-12 and Aquarius are CIA confidential. Now, this was written by John Lear in 1987, but that's a very great description of what MJ-12 was and what it was created for. So then this is like the birth of the black budget programs. Uh, as far as the United States is concerned, this is where all the cover-ups begin. This is where also we have the overnight advances in all the technology. Um, oh yeah, these are two photos. Well, one photo, just different filters of the... Uh, wreck in Aztec, New Mexico in 1948. So we have Roswell, we have Majestic 12, and then in 1948, immediately we have another down saucer with 16 occupants this time. And there was more witnesses this time. And as far as we can tell, this is an original photograph. Um, there's no way to prove it, but this is all we got to go by. Uh, so there's a lot happening back then, guys. And then Fast forward to 1952, where we have the White House flyovers. Um, allegedly, these were Nazi discs. Um, they didn't know at the time that they were the Nazis. Maybe they did, but they weren't telling us. Somebody knew. It's compartmentalized. Right. Yeah. So here's a photograph. Um, this is a newspaper article. Um, and then this is your slide if you want to read it. Yeah. So 1952, the... Uh, invasion of washington happened a uh, series of ufo sightings over dc in july 1952 um accompanied by radar contacts at three separate airports in the area so three separate airports picked up unknown objects on their radar all at the same time so they knew something was flying around in the sky that they didn't know what it was and jets were literally scrambled to go after them and this is all this is all historical fact by the way um and then after all that happened, you know, obviously the jets were scrambled, realized they were no match for whatever these things were. And then, of course, the cover-up has to happen after that. The Air Force tried to claim the radar blips were merely caused by temperature inversions and the visual sightings were merely meteor stars and city lights, nothing more. Nothing yes. to see here. Move along. And um, William, uh, Tompkins, William Tompkins, Dan Cooper, or a couple other people, um, both they claimed that these were the Nazi discs. Um, yeah, they were the Nazis. Um, that seems the most likely. It's like the, it was like a show of force by exactly. the Nazis to say, "Hey, we can fly in your most restricted airspace, right over your capital." Basically, calling their and bluff. You, you can do nothing about it, kind of thing. Like as like, you know, hey, right. we we have this technology. You guys better do what we say. You better you know submit to us, kind of. Kind and then of the 1950s saucer craze begins. Yeah. So, and then this picture here to the right with these girls part of the flying saucer club 
like that, that's just funny to me because you know we there's these groups all over the place now but back then i'm sure this was like a really exciting thing to be a part of right the flying saucer club <laughs> there was uh comic books i mean movies were being made it was everywhere and then 1952 right after all this happens this is when project blue book was established and the national security agency agency was also established in 1952 they hired j allen hynek yeah college professor and this is a definition of Project Blue Book from John Lear's report. Um, it was uh, the U.S. Air Force project established to determine whether UFOs pose a threat to the security of the United States and to determine whether UFOs exhibit any unique scientific information or advanced technology which could contribute to scientific or technical research. Project Blue Book was not quite so successful in its secondary mission, which was to publicly explain away the UFO phenomenon as natural or known phenomenon. The secondary mission, it was decided that it was an outside commission of distinguished scientists would be convened in order to permanently lay the issue to rest. Um, after the study was completed, the Air Force state the continuation of Project Blue Book cannot be justified. So either way, this here is coming from the John Lear report in 1987 that says Project Blue Book's secondary mission was to cover up the UFO phenomenon, but they were unsuccessful. Because so many people were seeing were seeing UFOs at the time, it was it was getting out of hand. Uh, it was like everyone was seeing these things and like, what are these? And reporting them, and they're like, we need to squash this. We need to come up with a scientific explanation to explain. Oh, what these are just weather anomalies. These are weather balloons, swamp gas, ball lightning, blow, you know, go down right. the list. And anything possible other than an unknown object or an or a ET craft. And <laughs> they, uh, they the show, by the way, the History Channel show, Project Blue Book, was really good. It's a really good show. And, I highly recommend watching. And they were canceled after two seasons because the third the third season they were getting into the natural portal system that was all over the planet. Mm -hmm. And like one of the guys gets lost in the portal. So the third season was supposed to be them like discovering this portal system. And then obviously that's when they shut it down. They don't want us to know about that. Right. So they were discovering portals. I mean, this is so far so, beyond UFOs. So quick note. So they hired Jay Allen Hynek to, he thinks they're hiring him to actually investigate <laughs> this stuff. And he's, and he's a non-believer when they hire him completely. He, he thinks UFOs are fantasy, not real at all when he gets hired. But he still thinks they're hiring him to actually investigate. And he thinks what he's going to find is that there is nothing behind these because he doesn't believe in it. But what actually ends up happening is he ends up realizing like, wow, uh, a lot of these are unexplainable. There is something going on here that we can't explain. I need to look more into this. So he gets, he starts getting more and more and more intrigued and, and like a believer in UFOs that, hey, there's something and in his own, here. In his own integrity, yeah. he, he couldn't uh, go against, like he he wouldn't, he was going against orders. Basically. And, they, and they, they're getting mad because he's wanting to tell the truth of what he like, hey, we this is unexplainable right. and we need to invest. And they're like, we and they basically straight up have to tell him we hired you to explain this away, to cover it up, not to come up with some so, something as an explanation, not right. to actually tell the truth or actually investigate it. So 1952 yeah. Blue Book and the NSA were established same year. Interesting. Yep. Um, I, I, we know what Blue Book is now. 1954, this is the Eisenhower ET meeting. The Granada Treaty was signed. Allegedly, it's signed every 10 years, but there's a lot of controversy around this. First of all, remember how we started this presentation in 1890. We have 
information that says there was a possible shadow government ET alliance established then in 1890. So this wouldn't be the first time this is happening. This would be the first time it's happening with one of our presidents in the know, in the know. So this isn't necessarily the shadow government, even though it is, but we have uh, President Eisenhower involved in this. There's controversy. So essentially, it's an agreement made between humans and the Greys that allowed for the abduction of humans by ETs in exchange for advanced technology. Allegedly, the deal was made behind Eisenhower's back, yet he became the fall guy. A lot of people think that Eisenhower was responsible for this, but I don't think any pres president actually has no. that much power. This was they all don't. being done by the military and these agencies behind his back. Yeah, it was done completely behind his back. Right. He had so nothing to do with it. A complete list of abductees was to be given to our government in an effort to keep tabs on who was being taken in exchange for the technology. But the Greys, the Mitra, and in, in specifically the Mitra, I believe, who were uh, the ones signing this treaty, did not hold up their end of the deal. And as many claim, this was the beginning of the ET takeover within our government. So there's that. 19... What did I say that was? I'm already... 1954. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then right after that, 1955, Operation Deep Freeze. Here we are back in Antarctica. The United States, along with New Zealand, the United Kingdom, France, J Japan, Germany, Norway, Chile, Argentina, and the USSR agreed to team up and go to the South Pole. All of a sudden, now we're all friends. Uh, the goal was to advance world knowledge of Antarctic weather systems, glacial movements, and marine life. I call bullshit. Again, this yeah. was commanded by, guess who? Admiral Byrd. Hey, here, what do you know? Here is a photograph from this pole that was installed to commemorate Operation Deep Freeze. As you saw on the last slide, there's actually a patch. Um, so the plane on the patch and that, that pole is also on the, on the patch. Um, this pole is on the patch. And you see all the flags, all the nations, the country's flags behind it. But to the bottom right here is uh, it's a real photograph of the plane, the U.S. Navy making their first landing at the South Pole on October 31st, 1956. So this was a deep freeze uh, mission. So we're back in Antarctica. What's going on down there? Just want to see how the wall's holding up, I guess. <laughs> So what right. exists in Antarctica? According to multiple insiders, Antarctica is the central hub for space operations on the planet, along with ancient pyramids, ancient ruins of advanced civilizations, three massive UFO wrecks under the ice, stargates, alien bases, tunnel systems, entrance to inner Earth. Oh, inner Earth. Yeah, typo. <laughs> spaceports, spaceports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You name it, it's down it's there, down according there. to... Every whistleblower, anybody. Every whistleblower ever right. that knows anything about it. Um, and there's tons of information out there on that. So then we have in, so that was 19. Well, so let me go back. So deep freeze was, oh, it actually officially ended in 1999. So that's still continued until then. And then, but in 1955, it was developed in 1961. We have the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction. Yeah, so this is a very famous UFO abduction, Betty and Barney Hill, September 19th, 1961. This is a couple. Um, they were driving home to their home in uh, New Hampshire, I believe it was. And they claimed they saw a huge flying disc on their drive home. And they had all this missing time and these kind of strange things surrounding that. Um, 
They later claimed they were abducted and medically examined by small extraterrestrials. And the physical evidence absolutely corroborates their story that was found. Uh, there were magnetic anomalies on their car, strange unknown substance on Betty's dress, and a star map drawn by Betty attempting to recreate the map shown to her by the ETs. And so she drew a map of Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2 in 1961, which was well before this was public knowledge yeah, but, at all. But you um, forgot the most impressive part. They drew the map as if they were viewing it from the other side. Yeah, yeah. they drew it as if they were viewing it from the other side. Not from Earth. Not from Earth <laughs> also. Right. So not only was it not public knowledge, and there's no way she could have even known how to draw this map, uh, but it's from the other side of, of, of it from Earth. So right. clearly there's something going on there. And yeah, as I said, we did not have the data to make such a map in 1961, nor in 1964 when she drew it. So it could not be a hoax. And at, during this time, uh, Project Serpo or Project Crystal Knight, which we're going to get into, was being developed. And this was under this is actually President Kennedy was aware of this. So there was a which I'll get into in a minute. But so the same year as Benny and Barney Hill, Bet, <laughs> Betty, Benny and Barney, Benny, <laughs> Betty and Barney Hill, uh, President Kennedy um, sends out a memorandum called the Kennedy Directive, a memorandum on the need for greater coordination of regional and field activities of the government. So basically, this is when he was starting to learn about all these secret programs, all of the three-letter agencies, and he wanted everything compiled under like one, under one organization. He thought it was spread way too thin, too compartmentalized. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And he was made aware of this mission that was going to planet Serpo. He was uh, also made aware of a lot of other things. So he thought as president, he had the power to, well, let's just bring all this together and work together. Mm -hmm. Well, that's when they decided to kill him. Of course. <laughs> um, you can't do that. But it's interesting to note that 1961, the same year as the Betty Bunny Hill, that happened. And then we have another UFO incident in 1965. Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a mass sighting of a falling brilliant fireball and it was reported over six u.s states and canada uh dropping debris and causing sonic booms followed by a cordoned off of the uh cordoning off sorry of the probable crash site alleged intimidation of a reporter by men in black and cover-up and the unresolved death of said witness right so somebody was died trying to report and there's a kill there's an alleged um i guess not the actual craft right but right like but a that's like a model of model it. of what it was so it had some kind of strange markings on it like so so while that was happening on the surface we have project crystal knight or project serpo mm -hmm. um taking off leaving earth um 12 astronauts going to spend 10 years on an alien planet 240 trillion miles from earth kennedy had knowledge of this mission uh, which is part of the reason he um wanted uh, signed the Kennedy Kennedy directive or he implemented that which obviously failed but 1965 he was aware of this and um this is if you guys haven't read the secret journey to planet serpo if you listen to our channel i always talk about this book there's a lot of information here a lot of it's some of it's not really verifiable but if it is real if any of it's real um it's pretty impressive and we have yeah, highly um, recommend that book. Yeah, so to everyone. and actually, so the 12 astronauts were supposed to spend 10 years, but time worked differently on that planet. So they thought they were gone for 10 years. They were actually gone for 13 years. And 
So they spent three years there longer than they actually went. Yeah, they had a lot of trouble gauging time because the planet had two sons. Had two sons and their years different and like their days were different. It, it kind of puts into perspective like their watches. <laughs> any device they had to tell time did not work on that planet. Right. Um, and then they also discovered um genetic experiments, cloning facilities. I mean, there was a lot they discovered on that planet. Mm -hmm. Um, so then we have another okay, so 1967, right after that. We have UFOs at Maelstrom Air Force, Air Force Base, which you can read that. Yeah. So this is the Air Force Base in Montana. This is this happened March 16th, 1967. UFOs disabled 16 to 18 nuclear missiles. By this time, UFOs had been regularly showing up around Air Force bases, hovering and flying around, vanishing and reappearing and shutting down uh, nuclear facilities and, and disabling them uh, since the 40s, at least. Um, they were never hostile or violent, though, uh, but they made it clear that they could disable our missiles anytime and there was literally nothing we could do about it. Right. So, and that's for been good going reason on for a long time. So, 1967. And then, guess what happens? 1968, Apollo missions begin. Funding for the SSPs is what I like to say, uh, because a lot of that, that was a cover the funding for NASA. I mean, it did go into the surface level moon missions, but a lot of that funding gets um, funneled into the programs. And even NASA didn't know they were lying to you. So why I say that is because there's a lot of evidence about the moon landing footage being faked and filmed by Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick. in a studio. And I mean, it's damning evidence. It's, it's pretty much verified at this point that there was moon landing footage filmed in the studio here on Earth. Mm -hmm. um and a lot of people think that means we didn't go to the moon but we did it was both but it was both um but there were everything a lot of things found on the everything moon that, so compartmentalized right. even nasa didn't know they were lying to you um so well, why did we stop going to the moon why do you think according to some people even nasa at mission control like even that was all set up for mission control they were being shown mm -hmm. fake footage as well right um the, I mean, everything, even they, like, they can't know, they can't be in on it because they have to sell it. So they have to believe this in how compartmentalized things are. It's right. extremely compartmentalized. So yeah. now this is when we get into William Tompkins testimony. Um, so this is actually a drawing of what William Tompkins claims to have witnessed himself, um, the, the actual footage of the moon landing. So we have the little lunar rover here in the middle with two astronauts next to it. And then you have six gigantic craft surrounding the crater's edge. And then you have some other object in the sky here. Maybe that's Earth. I don't know what that's depicting. Um, but here is what Tompkins claims. This is coming from his book, Selected by Extraterrestrials, Volume 2. Tompkins claims to have witnessed firsthand classified live feed from the Apollo 11 lander. So there was a classified live feed that wasn't being shown to the public. The Apollo missions were just the foundation for the deep space exploratory interstellar missions, according to Tompkins. He said the Apollo missions were planned by the Navy and the think tank at Douglas Aerospace years before NASA was ever created. This wasn't something that they just like Kennedy was like, oh, we need to go to space. Uh, let's create NASA and go like this had right. been a plan for decades that the, the U.S. Navy um, was in on. They were developing in think tanks in Douglas Aerospace. Kennedy was given permission to go to space publicly by, but by who? William Tompkins says by who? The space race was on. Tompkins was confused because he knew about the secret space programs already. He knew he had this technology. He had been developing and drawing out the plans for these 
uh, the space fleets that we had been using in our secret space programs at this time, or at least the development of them. And he was confused that they were going to the moon in the public eye under conventional methods. Uh, so he understood what we were watching was some sort of show. This was some sort of propaganda for the space race against the Russians. Um, this they were, this was a political stunt, basically. Um, uh, Tompkins says, we have extensive naval communication stations all over the planets and moons in our solar system and other solar systems, and we are still expanding. In 1969, all communications between the astronauts and mission control were censored and classified above top secret by the CIA. So we have to consider that everything we saw and heard um, from the moon landings was uh, stage footage. Was We were watching the movie. Then they were reading us a script. So here's one more quote from William Tompkins. I was privy to watching the uncensored TV and audio feed from the moon landing in a private studio in L.A. What I saw was that upon the landing, astronauts first donned Masonic aprons, descended from the lunar module and placed a Masonic plaque and a Masonic flag on the surface of the moon, essentially claiming it for the Freemasons. Yeah. They observed six large vehicles perched on the crater's edge, overseeing them. Armstrong shouted, they are huge, sir. So there's a lot more about this in the book, guys. But for the sake of this presentation, I'm just kind of breezing through the bullet points. Quick side note, when you look into NASA, literally everything they do is, is an occult ritual. It's a Freemasonic occult ritual because that's who the people running NASA are and that and again, the occult doesn't mean bad. It means hidden. It's hidden secret knowledge. But it, the cabal no, has this knowledge and they use it for negative. They use it for control and enslavement, blah, blah, blah. And that's where, you know, they, they've and they've uh, hijacked Freemasonry and goes back to Knights Templar and goes back, you know, to the mm -hmm. Egyptian mystery schools and, and Babylon and Sumer. And, you know, right. anyways, all that to say, right. Freemasonry is not bad inherently. Do not, that's not what I'm saying. Most Freemasons have no idea about any of this. They're good people. But the people running it at the very tip top of the pyramid are these people that are also running NASA. And NASA, everything they do is a, a cult, is an occult ritual. Down to the symbols, down, down to their logos. Yeah. To a T. Like look into it. And there's a really good book on this called Dark Mission by Mike Barra yeah. and Richard C. Hoagland. Yeah. yeah, we have it upstairs. Uh, I highly recommend that book, Dark Mission um and it reveals all of that and it reveals a lot of right all the nasa cover up everything basically so yeah right so so, so then the um the armstrong they were told by the ets that humans were not welcome to the moon and they must leave that's why we never that's why we didn't return publicly um there's a lot more to that story but that's in a nutshell that's what happened and this comes from tompkins one last thing from him aliens have built hundreds of moon structures most on the backside so ancient people living on earth could not see the constructions and of course the aliens have built extensive facilities not just in caverns like those that cover the entire inside of the earth but many cities on the backside of the hollow moon is what he calls william Tompkins says the hollow moon and he says a lot about our moon he said first of all it's not our moon second of all it's not a moon it's a space station. It's hollow. It's extensively built out on the inside and, and on the backside. Even some on the front side that are cloaked, apparently. So, so 1968, NASA uh, goes to the moon. 
1969 project blue book is closed i wonder why they have a new cover up now right they've, they're distracting everyone with nasa um so right. they um don't they don't need blue book anymore it's not worth the funding which we know it probably didn't actually get shut down but renamed rebranded either way publicly it closed and then shortly after that in 1972 the apollo program officially closed and there the, apparently the reason for that was because of what actually happened on their first encounter to the moon uh, even though humans have been on the backside of the moon for far longer um than we've ever been told and right. then the famous 1975 travis walton sighting you could read this one there yeah so travis walton he was just a logger he was like how old was he like 18 when this happened uh here you reports being abducted by aliens for five days so he was he was logging with a with a crew of like six or seven people i forget six three, six people six, got, i can yeah. just read it on there yeah <laughs> six people and just normal guy uh and they all see this bright burning thing <laughs> like they don't know what it is. they think the force is on fire or something they don't know what it is and then they they get closer and they realize it's like a craft that's like gl glowing and Travis just starts walking towards it and the rest of them are just like, what are you doing? And they're trying to yell at him and come back. And he just like, he's like drawn to it and he can't stop. He's just walking towards it. And then the craft takes off. And basically when the craft took off is when it knocked him back and um, it either killed him or it like just very badly injured him. Well, what they said is um, apparently what he says I forget what is, he says. Exactly. He got caught in like the tractor beam. Of, that, that's right. That's right. And they weren't trying to hurt him. They weren't trying. So to. when they accident. took off, he got caught in this like tractor beam, essentially. And then after they got so far away from the plant, like planet, is when he fell to the ground and they injured him. And he was injured. He so was they injured. actually abducted him to heal to him, heal him to heal him. Right. He, it, despite what the Hollywood movie tells you. Um. So yeah, he claimed. So he, he was he was missing for five days during all this. Uh, because they they took him aboard their craft to heal him, but he was gone for five days, and the whole town accused thought those guys murdered him or something. And uh, he shows up five days later, um, like naked and confused and scared. And so yeah, the ETs on the craft healed him. There was physical evidence that was discovered that corroborated the story. And to this day, Travis Walton still speaks at UFO conferences and tells his story. It has not changed in the entire time. He's actually speaking at one coming up this summer. He's yeah, he's speaking at one coming up still. Uh, I actually met him. There's a picture of me with him at Contact in the Desert in 2018, the one year I went to that. Um, I got to talk to him for about almost an hour, and he's a super down to earth, awesome guy. Like he he's a very genuine, honest guy. Like he's not. He's not doing this to be famous or make money. He's just not, you know, he's just telling, just what, telling, happened. The story. He's just I, telling what happened. He's telling what happened. And I was just on a road trip in the Southwest and I actually drove through this town that it happened. And uh, we saw, uh, you know, all the whole town is like UFO and ET themed now, like kind of like a mini right. as well. But it was interesting to drive through the town. So that was 1975. Then 1977, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And according to um, Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg and, well, and some other uh, I think who was president at the time? Um, <clears throat> uh, was it Reagan? Carter? No, Carter, maybe. Jeez, uh, I'm horrible at my... Who was president? Um, I think it was Carter. Right, it was... Right, yeah, it was Carter. Carter. Yeah, I was right. So anyway, uh, according to some information out there, uh, at the end of 
Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when 12 astronauts are boarding the craft, that was direct disclosure of Planet Serpo. When 12 yeah. astronauts left, they were just like telling the public. And that movie was filmed on a military base that even Steven Spielberg had to have like clearance and access to get onto. And like one day he forgot his badge. They wouldn't even let him on the base. And he's like, I'm the director. And they're like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> he had to go back to his hotel. But the interesting thing about the script of this movie was it was allegedly written in three days which never happens, which is insane. There was like, never happens the, yeah. all by Steven Spielberg in his hotel in three days. And there were no rewrites. Yeah. Every, which also never happens. Also never happens. And according to who you talk to, this was um, the end of this movie was disclosure of the Serpo mission. Yeah. So then that was in 1977 while the, while the people were still gone, they had not yet returned from planet Serpo in 1978. The Serpo team returns. There was debriefings. They were actually held in basically a prison. Uh, each one was separated. They were uh, individually debriefed. They were they had to stay there for like a year. They were actually treated very poorly. None of the promises were held up. Uh, they had been made promises, and um, eventually, all of them ended up dying of radiation uh, poisoning. Yeah, they were. But they were radiated very yeah, yeah they none of them none of and and not all of them returned a few of them actually decide to stay and live out their life on that planet mm -hmm. but again 1978 you'll notice we have another jump just like in 47 after roswell we have all these overnight advances in tech same thing happens in 78 when the serpo team returns and again guys read the book like matthew morning in the chat was saying it's a great book it really is um <clears throat> and then 1980, uh, this is going back to William Tompkins um, in his book, Selected by Extraterrestrials, Volume 2. Uh, this is when William Tompkins says that the U.S. Navy's 20 and back program began. So, and he also goes into talking about all the age regression technology that we had. And I actually had a video clip saved that I wanted to play that has been scrubbed from the internet where, where William Tompkins was talking about uh, how they were age regressing people. And he said, even a lot of the major corporations on the planet have access to this technology. And it's that technology is used by the CEOs mm -hmm. and some of the elites on the planet. But either way, we have evidence of um, at least the Navy's version of the secret space program 20 and back starting in 1980, according to William Tompkins. 1980s, the same year when Captain Mark Richards was um, framed for murder because he would wanted to start disclosing the secret space program. Carrie Cassidy did 12 interviews, uh, some with his wife. Some of the interviews, she actually had to go visit him in prison to get. Um, you can uh, go check out all those interviews on Project Camelot. I recommend it. There's some incredible information. But here's a little bit about Mark Richards. For over 30 years, Captain Mark Richards has been and still is a prisoner of war between on and off planet races that have dominated Earth for centuries. He is an honorable officer of the Navy who, because of his rebellion against the Dracos and Reptoids, the Luciferian Alliance, is considered a threat to their operations. In 1980, he was framed for a murder that he is accused of having masterminded while he was on a mission off planet in service to humanity he was captain of a starship enterprise type of vessel fighting a war against aliens bent on to take over the planet so he wanted to defect he wanted to start disclosing this stuff in 1980 
Um, he was not in alignment with what he was being asked to do anymore. And they framed him for murder and he's been locked up ever since. There's an incredible testimony there. Yeah. If you guys have not heard that. Um, now we have secret space programs. Well, right. That's yeah. Secret space crazy. programs well underway. 1987. That's when we have the John Lear report. Here I was born. December. And I actually, guys, I actually have this report. If you want to look at the tiny little thumbnail at the top, this is an actual report apparently from 1987, December 29th. I, I don't know if this is one of the original copies or what, but this was gifted to me. And the guy who gave it to me couldn't tell me how he obtained it. Regardless, there's more disclosure in this 87 report than anything we've gotten in the past 10 years publicly. Um, and in the first page of the report, this is just something interesting to note that John Lear says, he said, the government of, U of the United States continues to rely on your personal and professional gullibility to suppress the information contained herein. Your co cooperation over the past 40 years has exceeded our wildest expectations and we salute you. <laughs> so we've yeah. been basically cooperating um, not really unbeknownst to us, but definitely um, they've got us under control, guys. Um, not any, not for long, but and yeah, that's that's rapidly changing. <laughs> and you can read some of this if you want about Lear. Yeah, so John Lear, he's a big whistleblower. Um, uh, so John Lear says there are at least seventy different species of aliens. There's, I think, there's way way more than that, but. He's speaking from his personal knowledge. There's 70 that he knows of personally. Uh, little green men, as well as little gray ones who are about four and a half feet tall. Nordics, which are similar in appearance to humans, but are taller and have blonde hair, blue eyes. We've all heard about those. Uh, it says that one of those species was recovered from a crash and was stored on ice. Claim that there are good and bad aliens and they have all kinds of ways to interact with humans believe that everything started with the roswell crash in 1947 i would disagree i think it started you know there were crashes before that and it started before that but you know that was the big one um he claimed that in september 1945 president truman established mj12 majestic 12 and the purpose of that was to study the saucers and cover up the existence of ufos he told knapp that george knapp that four alien bodies were recovered from a crash and were autopsied by covered up i can't see oh sorry dr detlev bronk um they were named ebs ebe which stands for extraterrestrial biological entities and three live ebs were captured in different crashes eb one lived with an air force colonel between 1949 and 52. uh the ebs were kept in an electromagnetic facility called yy2 which was designed by eric wang worked under Dr. Kissinger and was involved in the cover-up of the incident since the beginning. Uh, Lear said, the reason they have to create an electromagnetic facility is the fact that the EBS are so advanced, they're at least half a billion years advanced from us and probably more. So that's pretty mind-boggling to think about. And they can also disappear, but they can't move by thought through an electromagnetic facility. So the only way to contain them, they had to build an electromagnetic field like facility to contain them isn't that what um, mary beaver just explained what was built around that giant she saw That's right so yeah. there you go there's corroboration right there uh so they built this facility there was two one in los alamos and one either in edwards air force base or at the test site lear discussed the existence of extraterrestrial beings at groom lake nevada also known as area 51 
he stated that there was still a living extraterrestrial biologically known as Eve 3. There was a tape of an interview with this being. However, Lear did not see the tape and was unaware of that. Or, or sorry, unaware of what language was used in the interviews. He also mentioned that he had been given 25 secret CIA memos on his trip to gather information. One of the memos mentioned Eve 3 wanted to see the ocean and that the arrangements needed to be made or the Eve would disappear again. Knapp asked if these beings can exist among us and if they need a special environment. Lear said that they have a special environment, special air, and can only last about 20 minutes on Earth's air. There's tons of information from John Lear. Yeah, and he's a wealth of information. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and this is a little more information on John Lear, if you want to read all this or not. Um, you know, I'm not, you can read that. Right. I've read enough. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Well, these uh, are your slides. <laughs> yeah. Here, I'll read. I'll read some of it. Just read. So, dozens of science saucers have crashed over the years. U.S. government recovered all of them. Um, so, yeah, we've made deals. He, he, with he says Lear claims that the that this area is no longer in U.S. control. The aliens have taken over the area. The U.S. government, this is talking about Area 51, the U.S. government then made a deal with the aliens in which the aliens could control a segment of S4 and abduct as many people as they want in return for their technology. And it kind of goes into the... And then they discovered they're abducting way more people than they agreed to. So they didn't hold up their, you know, their end of the bargain. And a whole bunch of scientists were killed. Um, the deal was broken, but the aliens stayed. We're abducting as many as one in 10 Americans. As many as one in 10 Americans, 10%. So think about that. Uh, to using experiments, mutilating these abductees producing androids and underground laboratories. Uh, sometime in the 1980s, the government and the aliens got together again and are working together so that the U.S. can gain some more alien technology. Lear claims there's a secret U.S. government that's overseeing the abductions and that the abductees have implants in them that control them so that when an ideal time came, the secret government could enslave them and control them via drug addiction. The head of the secret government would be MJ-12. So this is the cabal that we talk about, the deep state, the secret government. It's all the same. Uh, they created MJ-12, so that's that's a part of them. Uh, Lear's sources were Paul Benowitz, Bob Lazar, and later on Bill Cooper. Right. And then Bob Lazar, um, I'll read this since you just read off. Yeah, he came out, um, came out in 1989 claiming to have been hired to reverse engineer ET technology at a secret site called S4, just south of Area 51. Claims he examined an alien craft that ran on an antimatter reactor powered by Element 115, which at the time had not yet been synthesized. Claims to have read U.S. government briefing documents that described alien involvement in human affairs over the past 10,000 years. And what's interesting, I just talked to um, Jim. Um, oh, my God. What's his name? Goodall. Goodall. Jim Goodall. I just synchronistically met today and we're going to have him on the show. Um but he was friends. He is friends with Bob Lazar and he was friends with Bob Lazar before he went to work for area 51. And he told me just today that Bob Lazar didn't believe in aliens, UFOs at all. Actually, he made fun of it. He ridiculed it. Before so, so, <laughs> so John Lear, Bob Lazar and Jim Goodall were hanging out actually. And mm -hmm. Lear left and Lazar told Jim, he said, he goes, man, I feel bad for Lear. I feel sorry for Lear. And he's like, why? He goes, because he believes in that UFO crap. I'm a nuclear physicist. It's not possible, blah, 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 blah. He goes, you couldn't pay me to, you couldn't pay me enough money to convince me that UFOs are real. He said well, that was before he, he went to work for S4. Right. Uh, Jim Goodall said when he came back, he was a completely changed man. 
completely changed man. And now here he is. He can no longer deny. So he went from being. So how do you, so, so it's funny because the mainstream likes to debunk him and, you know, and make him into like, Oh, he's just, he's just a crazy UFO. He just wants to be popular and sell his crazy stories. But here you have actual, I mean, to me, it's spoken word proof that he was a huge skeptic that made fun of the stuff that wanted nothing to do with it. And now you're going to say somebody like that is now just going to right. start making up stories of like publicly, yeah. you know, putting his reputation. You and know. then, and then this is the autopsy is. that Aaron mentioned earlier. Santilli autopsy film. Yeah. So this came out in 1995. Um, it was obtained by this guy in 1992 named Ray Santilli. Um, and it was, so he released it up to 33, to up to 33 countries. He was a British entrepreneur, um, claimed he got it from a retired U.S. military cameraman while, while he was trying to obtain archive footage of Elvis Presley. Uh, footage was released, he released it in 1995 when he sold it to TV stations across the world. Of course, the government claimed it was fake. You know, of course. And so this was examined by this guy named Nikos Alexikos, who was a biologist and a medical researcher, along with multiple professors. And they found that it's definitely not human and it couldn't have possibly been a fake for various reasons. I'll read this if you want. Um, and this is part of the autopsy memo. A leaked memo was obtained by aerospace billionaire Robert Bigelow from Eric Davis, one of his physicists. The memo says that Kit Green, a CIA scientist, was briefed three different times during and after his tenure at the CIA on topics relevant to UFOs and the Roswell incident alien autopsy. After Kit left the CIA, he was called into the Pentagon by a person in uniform. This person showed Kit the alien autopsy photos and reports, etc., the photos of the alien cadaver kit saw were the cadaver kit oh. saw. Is that right? Kit is his name. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Kit Green is his yeah, name. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> the photos of the alien that kit cadaver saw, that kit saw right. were consistent with the cadaver seen in a 1995 Santilli film video. Kit was asked to professionally evaluate the material provided to him at the particular briefing. You can read that. Uh, so Kit Green gave a professional evaluation of the footage in January 2001. Stated in his report, the alien autopsy film video is real. The alien cadaver is real. And the cadaver seen in the film is the same as the photos that he saw at the 1987-88 Pentagon briefing. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe said those words from Dr. Kit Green about the authenticity of the six-fingered, six-toed human dissected after retrieval from a 1947 UFO crash it is confirmation that the Santilli film is real. It is important. I would agree with that. Green said that he had previously seen an authentic alien autopsy years before the film was released, and that it was the same as the alien autopsy film released by Ray Santilli in 1995. So he's saying he saw that footage before that film was released, and it was the same footage. Right. That's what he said. And then we have Phil Snyder in 1995. The mysterious death of Phil Schneider, the man who revealed the conspiracy of the U.S. authorities with the aliens. So less than six months after Phil Schneider uh, went came public, 
He was found dead in his apartment with a piano string wrapped around his neck. Rumors immediately spread that it was a military-style execution. Also, Phil's body was in such a state that people close to the investigation let out that apparently Phil was brutally tortured before his death. However, the official cause of death was suicide. By the way, Phil Snyder suspected from the very beginning that he could be killed if he let it out. He repeatedly told family and friends that if they were ever told he had committed suicide, it would be untrue and that it would be murder. Phil Snyder understood that by his revelations, he angered many powerful people and they would definitely take some action against him as a result of which he would be killed. Uh, this next photo is graphic, but this is Phil Schneider's hand. If you guys know his testimony, he was in a laser fight uh, with some ETs while they were drilling for an underground tunnel network. Uh, they, I mean, look at his hand. You can just see something crazy. Right. So he claims to have been um, shot in uh, not only there, but in his chest, a couple other places with this laser, and he was rescued. Right. Um, there's a whole testimony there. It's incredible. There's actually a documentary on Amazon Prime all about Phil Schneider. I highly recommend looking at it. Um, so these are key points from Phil Schneider's message. If you don't know who he is, these are eight things that he said of significance. According to Schneider, by 1995, there were 131 active secret underground bases in the United States and about 1,440. Uh, 77 underground bases worldwide. Each base cost an average of 17 to 19 billion in 1995 money and took one to two years to build using advanced construction techniques, including vitrification and rock melting using lasers. Schneider stated that these bases are huge and contain thousands upon thousands of soldiers and service personnel. Two, this is a second point, magnetic levitation trains connect all bases in the United States and a huge transportation system is capable of incredibly high speeds. He claims that there is a whole other world down there filled with both humans and alien life forms. Three, Area 51 is actually a complex of nine deep underground bases home to more than 18,000 workers whose lives are highly regulated and completely classified. Four, in 1954, the United States government uh, signed an agreement with aliens, giving them permission to conduct ex experiments on humans and animals in exchange for technology. So he says also animals, which he also talks about the cattle mutilations. This agreement, known as the Treaty of Granada, is a well-documented event. The original terms of this agreement stated that only a small number of people could be kidnapped and they needed to be returned where they were found and their memory of the incident should be erased. The aliens also could had to provide a list of people they were abducting. However, after a few years, it became clear that the aliens took no took many more people than they initially agreed. Five, there are 11 different alien races on Earth. Now, that was according to Phil, like every, like we tell you guys all the time, everything's compartmentalized. But as far as he knew, there were 11 different alien races on Earth at that time in 1985. And two of those are benevolent. Six, the New World Order and alien plans are one and the same. Schneider describes the alien program as a complete takeover of this planet, resulting in the death of five-sixths to seven-eighths of the world's population by 2029. Obviously, the alien takeover will mean that a single world government will be created, and in all likelihood, this will be the end of freedom as we know it. He was saying this in 1995, guys. 
Seven, at least nine races of alien beings view humans as a food source. However, this does not mean that they are all cannibals. Instead of actually ingesting human flesh, they use the secretions of the glands of humans and animals to prepare a mixture of vitamins added to their food. And some alien races can get a high like drugs from the adrenaline withdrawn from human bodies. And what does that sound like? Exactly. We know about. Hmm. And then number eight. 16 days before his public appearance, Schneider was attacked by someone he identified as an FBI agent. This man wounded Schneider in the shoulder, and in response, to Sh in response, Schneider shot and killed him. But when he reported this directly to the FBI, then Schneider was told that they did not know anything about that. However, after the report, he was attacked at least 11 times, according to him. He also claimed that the government agents tried to kidnap his daughter but these attempts were unsuccessful due to heroic, the heroic actions of his wife. Do you know what's the name of its documentary on Amazon? Um, type in Phil Snyder documentary on Amazon Prime. I don't know, actually. I'm sorry. Deep Underground Military. That's it. It's called Deep Underground Military Bases. It, it's called Phil Schneider Deep Underground Military Bases. It's worth every Here, post, second of I'll it. I'll post a link in the chat. Yeah. Um, Told you guys this was going to be long. Thank you guys for hanging out yeah, with us. Yeah, thank you guys for. Um, um, yeah, thank you so much. We realize this is really long, but um, hope you hope we, you're we put, hope you're enjoying it. Right, we <laughs> put a long. lot of work into this, so we hope you're enjoying. I it. I hope yes. you're not bored. Okay, so that was 1995. Then 1997, we have the Phoenix Lights incident, which here is a photograph. Um, they tried to describe them or explain them away as. Um, military flares. Um, so uh, lights and craft of varying descriptions, mostly notable, a V-shaped pattern were seen by thousands of people between uh, 1930 and 2230 Mountain Standard Time in a space of about 300 miles from the Nevada line through Phoenix to the edge of Tucson. Many reported lights floating for a while then accelerate away at high speeds. The cover story was that they were merely flares from the military training uh, flights. Arizona government governor at the time Five Simonton. Five Simonton initially jokingly dismissed the event. Later on in 2007 interview, he changed his story and said, I suspect that unless the Department of Defense proves otherwise, that it was probably some of the alien spacecraft. When asked about the official Air Force Pentagon explanation that they were military flares, total bunk. I have seen high altitude flares before. There is no way they were flares. It has never been explained. And, and he also said he saw it himself uh, later on. Right. He said he saw it. He said it was definitely not flares. That's ridiculous. And he said, unless proven otherwise, I it had to have been some kind of alien craft. Right. His words. That's so what then, he just said. In the year 2000, we actually have the uh, one of the first known testimonies of the secret space program, 20 and back. You know, we heard about William Tompkins talking about this stuff in, the, in like 2016 um, about it's being developed in the 80s but here is one of our very first testimonies so michael ralph if you know who he is he was an ssp whistleblower who actually doc, dr Sala did a number a series of interviews with him mm -hmm. um but he didn't know he no longer speaks publicly i don't know what happened to him but this was actually written by his daughter stephanie ralph in the year 2000 the mars records um, this was a book that you could buy. I could not find, I'm sure you could find it somewhere. This is like a PDF of it. I was able to uh, take from the internet, but this is some of the things that she said in 2000. 
Genetic modifications were performed on my father during his time served in the United States Air Force. I was the result of those modifications. Genetic enhancements were performed on myself at a young age. Programming was placed into me at some time to encourage me to enlist in the United States Navy. After enlistment, I was recruited for a joint human-alien black project involving tactical remote viewing. During this project, I was assigned to Mars to a Mars base. During this time, I also served as a combat pilot at a, in a single-seat attack spacecraft of some kind. I feel that my telepathic talent was also used in this role. Additional surgical and chemical modification, modifications were performed upon me as a result of my assignment to this project. My tactical remote viewing duties included telepathic assassination project. My involvement with this project lasted 20 years from 1976 to 1996, which would mean that in 1976, they were at least doing the 20 and back program. During this time, during this time period, I was not permitted to visit or interact with anyone on earth. At the conclusion of active duty in the program, I was age reversed 20 years and sent back to earth to complete my normal timeline. Memory blocks were placed into me to prevent memory recall. Implants were placed into me to block my metaphysical abilities and track my location and movements. The result of these memory blocks was that I was negatively affected in my family life, relationships, health, and employment. And she, she goes on to say that her involvement continues. It's actually called the underground. Sorry, going back to the Phil Schneider. Oh, it's just that was, called that the, was, it's called the underground. The underground. Yeah. Okay. It's Phil Schneider documentary on Amazon Prime called the underground. The underground. So either way, guys, this is a, a secret space program testimony from the year two thousand, the Mars records, and we have people coming out in twenty fourteen claiming that they invented some of these terms that were already being talked about in the year two thousand. So. Obviously, there's some sort of agenda there behind that. In the year 2001, we have the Disclosure Project National Press Club 2001 public hearing. Um, and I'm sure you guys know about this with um, Stephen Greer put this on. Dan Willis was one of the uh, presenters at this event. Um, on May 9th of 2001 at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., Dr. Stephen Greer assembled more than 20 military intelligence, government and, and corporate government, corporate and scientific witnesses who joined together for a very deliberately public press conference recorded at the time by several major media outlets, also watched by hundreds of thousands of webcasts live around the globe. These incredibly brave individuals share their personal firsthand testimony on experiences with real UFOs and other related encounters with extraterrestrial life forms. They also discuss at some length the current state of working knowledge regarding exotic extraterrestrial flying vehicles, as well as their radically advanced energy and propulsion technologies. This extremely credible panel of diverse professionals gathered together on stage under the united banner of the Disclosure Project. So this is 2001. Guys, we've been talking for over two and a half hours. Listen to everything we've said and compiled. <laughs> I mean, if if you if you just choose to ignore all of this stuff, uh, at that point, you're just choosing you, to you, not believe it. Yeah. Right. At some point, it's willful ignorance. And right. you just don't want to believe. And yeah. if that wasn't enough, Gary McKinnon in 2002, <laughs> oh, yes. a computer hacker named Gary McKinnon performed the largest military hack against the United States government in history. 
His system scanned over 65,000 computers belonging to the NSA, NASA, the CIA, etc. McKinnon claims that he was looking for evidence of free energy suppression and a cover-up of UFO activity. He says the files he saw prove the government not only hides the fact that aliens exist, but multiple species actually work alongside various governments worldwide. And here are some of the claims that he made. In Building 8 at Johnson Airspace, at Johnson Space Center, there is someone whose job is to only airbrush UFOs from images since they are so commonly captured. He found that out. He found out a U.S. Navy spreadsheet entitled Non-Terrestrial Officers. During his hack, he discovered this. McKinnon admits these words can be interpreted in various ways, but one thing is for sure, given the name, we know they're not based on Earth. McKinnon says there were maybe 25 rows on the Excel spreadsheet with officers, ranks, and names, and the ships that had the prefix USS, just like American sea vessels. He claims evidence of material transfer between ships, of which he guesses there are possibly 8 to 10. McKinnon says all of this points to evidence that the USA has warships in space, which might account for why the Bush administration were so keen to have him incarcerated in the States. So, and there's a lot more information that came from his hack, even photograph of a cigar shaped um, craft mm -hmm. that was then scrubbed from his computer once they realized where the source of the hack was coming from. Um, he wasn't able to actually. Yeah, they, they freaked out when he did this hack because this was. So this he was literally. Extremely, extremely secret stuff people aren't supposed to know about. And he. <laughs> he hacked it and yeah. found. Hardcore, solid evidence of a secret space program. Yeah. And then in 2004, we have the patent application for the triangular spacecraft, otherwise known as the TR-3B, an unconventional spacecraft with uh, unconventional spacecraft propulsion systems. So basically an anti-gravity craft. This application was applied for in 2004, and then it was abandoned after 2006. So it never became operable. And then, uh, obviously, I've personally seen one of these craft actually in March, March 2nd of this year, or yeah. of last year now. I had one fly directly over my house. Um, and still, I still have your audio text. Hit right. Sent me. <laughs> and Alara, Alara of One Foot and 5D, she has footage of one she yep. caught from uh, Dimensions of Disclosure. Uh, Dimensions of Disclosure 2019, which I was at. Right. Yes. She, she was filming the moon or something or what was she filming no she just she or, saw another light in the sky oh you were she was filming another ufo or another light and when she reviewed the footage and didn't see it with her own eyes but then when she reviewed the footage it was on the video and uh so anyway yeah, so she got one we, too. we have an actual patent filed um that literally shows this craft and talks about an unconventional propulsion system so anyway you can go ahead and read this one aaron this is 2009 yeah paul hellier so he was an ex-Canadian Minister of Defense. So here's an ex-Minister of Defense in Canada is saying this stuff, you know, come on. So he says there are four, and again, this is all he knows about. There's obviously way more than four, but it's all compartmentalized. It says there are four alien races that are actively visiting Earth. Direct quote here, from time to time, aliens have interfered with the control systems of nuclear missile launchers on Earth. The aliens conducted an inventory of Earth's events. They have a complete picture of what is happening on the planet. And believe me, they are not amused by what they see. I think they look at us and think the kids are playing with matches. Right. 
Yeah. So that yeah, was, so. and then he had been talking about that for a number of years, not just 2009, but that's when he first started talking. Yeah. Around that time is when he was really, you know, started speaking out a lot. Right. And then if you need more proof in 2016, a patent was applied for, for a craft using inertial mass reduction device. A mass reduction device is technology that is installed in the hull of a craft that reduces the mass of the object as it approaches the speed of light because they dis they decided that the speed of light was unachievable because as it increased in speed, it increased in mass, therefore it can never actually achieve the speed of light. So they developed a, a reverse engineered a technology, um, which is used on the TR-3Bs and other craft that actually reduces oh. the mass. Oh, sorry. Uh, it was Contact in Desert 2018 when Alara oh, okay. got that, which I was also at. Actually. Okay. So there you go. So, so there you go. It actually reduces the mass of the ship so it can can achieve the speed of light and this was this patent was not abandoned it was actually granted in 2018 and it is now operable and it doesn't expire until 2036 and this was actually released by the u.s navy this was made public in 2016 so we have actual evidence an actual patent operable patent of this technology being used to help achieve the speed of light if you didn't believe it was true. And we're going to jump to 2017. The New York Times uh, releases uh, the Tic Tac, the fuzzy Tic Tac that we all know about. And this is where it just starts getting hilarious. So, I mean, we just laid everything out for you guys. And we that was just the tip of the iceberg. Each slide could have been its own presentation. There's a lot we left out. But in 2017, we get this report of the Tic Tac. Um, we also, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. We also get, um, information about a glowing auras and black money, the Pentagon's mysterious UFO program. Basically it says that the Pentagon since 2007 has been, and still is conducting a $22 million UFO study chasing program that involved contractors like Big Bigelow Aerospace, which included, which provided locations and bases to house the wreckage of the UFOs which, as we know, have been shot down by the military with various retro engineer technologies since the late 40s. It goes on and on and on. But either way, so. So the government's spending millions of dollars to study something that's not supposed to exist or be anything, just weather anomalies right. and blah, blah, blah. But they're spending, but they have this program that they've been studying it for years. And so we have all this information. contradictory. So we have all this information. They give us this fuzzy tic tac. They tell us about a twenty-two but, million dollar program that has since been shut down, according to them. It has not. No. So here's just another screenshot of you know U.S. Navy describes seeing. But, uh, but it's the limited hangout disclosure. Right. You know they're trying to get ahead of things and steer us in a direction keep a keep a tight lid on it like oh this is all and, that we know about what is and, keep everyone focused on this one thing and we're all waiting for this report in 2017 and, right and guess what waiting guess what the report is from a sighting in 2004 right so 2004 yeah so they're telling you about 2004 and then in 2018 for some reason or another there's a, a model of this hanabu 2 flying saucer in germany that's decided that they decide to take off the shelf because it suggested Hitler's scientists successfully built a spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> so, <which> they did. <laughs> but this is this is something important to note. Why would they decide in 2018 to pull this off the shelf? Because guess what was also happening in 2018? All of the secret space program testimonies mm -hmm. and information was surfacing. So 
Now, if that wasn't true, they had no reason to pull this toy off the shelves. Unless it's a threat to the narrative. A Nazi flying saucer toy has been taken off the shelves in Germany. Uh, claims suggest it claims it suggests a Hitler scientist successfully built a spaceship. Um, either way, it's interesting. And then in 2021, the U.S. intelligence community releases the long-awaited UFO report, and it's a big nothing burger. <laughs> guys, it says literally. Guys, this is evidence of them <laughs> trying to erase history, trying to erase everything we just told you about in the report. It they it literally says the limited the limited amount of high quality reporting on unidentified aerial phenomenon hampers our ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature or intent of a UAP. The limited amount of high quality reporting. That's bullshit. The first sentence of the report. So they're saying there's not enough high quality reporting to accurately um, draw conclusions about the nature or intent of UAPs. It goes blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit. It even brings up a weather balloon potential again. And then this, uh, this is also, it says available reporting, largely inconclusive, limited data and inconsistency, inconsistency in reporting are key challenges to evaluating the UAP. So they're acting like they can't even provide us with an, a report because they have limited data and inconsistencies in reporting. They are guys, they are literally laughing. It's a it's an actual <laughs> joke. It's an actual joke. They are trying to erase history. It's they're making this is a laughing stock, and we're making a mockery of the UFO subject. And then I mean because they can't they can't tell us what's really going on because they're a part of the control system and the cover-up. And yeah. for multiple reasons, they can't disclose, they would tell on themselves, and they would have to tell the fact that they know about advanced ETs and technology that right. would change our whole planet forever and bye-bye control system. Right. So of course they're not going to tell us, of course the control system isn't going to tell us right. things that are going to make the control system obsolete. So, and then, so I have a no brain. You guys know who Robert Earl White is. Um, yeah. I don't, I hope hey, this, Robert, I don't know if, this, if you ever watch this, I don't know if this is going to play in this format while I'm screen sharing. Okay, it will. It will. Perfect. So he actually was given information on what was supposed to be included in this report, not the bullshit that we got. He got a copy of the the report that was supposed to be released. And this is him explaining it on our show. This is just a brief clip from that. But the new reality coming from Congress and the UIP task force is UFOs are real. And technically, I have a leaked memo from um, uh, Dr. Maccabee, Bruce Maccabee, retired Navy physicist. He sent uh, about 15-page article to the UIP Congress hearing uh, that they were having, and it was read by Congress. It was sent to Washington, D.C., and they were supposed to, back in June 25th, they boosted it. It was supposed to be June 20th. They moved it to June 25th. Uh, They scooted it forward. Originally, I have inside people that know people and the same people you see on the news talking about the subject. I got people that know. And the original terminology they were supposed to use and deliver this to the public word for word was NHI, non-human intelligence. That was going to be what was told to the public 
quote unquote, what the Congress was supposed to tell the public is that some UAP are operated by NHI. This was their watered down terminology they are supposed to be using. And they're not. They left, they left it out. And Luis Elizondo and Jeremy Corbell, Tom, and so many others that read this memo sent to Congress. You know, I have it. I have the Word document. And I've shared it and no one cares about it. I've shared it on the internet mm -hmm. and no one cares about it. It's Dr. Nice. Bruce McAbee. People don't know Dr. Bruce McAbee. The guy has eight millimeter films of UFOs that the Navy have recorded. I'm friends with his wife. Him and his wife haven't even watched it because they're preserving it for true disclosure. Then they'll release it. Very much kind of like the minute and all that. Like people have no idea the evidence is that. It's just being you know, waiting for the right time. And all of this stuff is out there. And that's why the UAP community and ufologists were so disappointed with the report. Of course, we yeah. know they can't say everything. It was a big nothing burger, yeah. Yeah. Actually, they said more back in 67, or, or I believe it was 67, <laughs> or the one recent panel. That's what we talked about. I said, mm -hmm. they're, they released this report as if there's no UFO history at all. Like that Roswell never yeah. happened. None of these. So, guys, this presentation continues on, but we're not going to continue on. <laughs> uh, we've been going long enough. And the, the next part is um, actually, it's not part of the timeline. It's something else I prepared for a presentation I did at another conference. But, um, Thank you guys so much. I realize yes, we've kept you for a long you time. We've been up here for a long time. Um, we really hope you enjoyed this. If you did, please um, share this with your friends and family. Please share this. Um, please share this with everybody you know if you feel like it's if it, this will apply to them. Um, this we put a lot of work into this, and uh, they're trying to erase history, and we're not going to let that happen. So we thank you guys, and thank you guys all for the donations. Yeah. Oh, so the, talk about the Patreon. So, yeah. so we just launched our Patreon, as as many of you know. Um, so we're going to be doing many more webinars, just like the not just like this topic, but we're going to be doing uh, similar style webinars on our Patreon now, which is five bucks a month. So we try to make it, you know, hopefully everyone can afford that, um, as many people as possible, and uh, we're going to have webinar so if you like this one we're going to have a lot more on there and we're also going to have other bonus content uh videos on various topics that each of us individually are going to make and just whatever whatever extra stuff um oh and that um which we, we talked about at the beginning the um documentary that was filmed at our conference at our secret space program themed conference last year there was a dutch film crew that came out and filmed for a tv show so that and documentary is available, will be available on their Patreon as of tonight. Tonight, I will yeah um, put that on there. And so it's really, really good. Like I highly, highly recommend. It's amazing that they came out from the Netherlands and literally filmed a documentary of our very first conference. And they did the Secret Space program a lot of justice. It was very well put together. Yeah. Um, it, you can't just go and watch it online because you need a VPN that's assigned, that's set to the Netherlands to even watch it. And you have to have a password. Um, it's not accessible in the United States. So we have taken that documentary and put it on our Patreon. Uh, it includes a lot of presenters that were at the conference, including some of the attendees. 
Uh, it's a fantastic documentary and that will be available also as exclusive content on our Patreon. So you don't have to jump through all the hoops to watch it with the VPN and the password and all mm -hmm. that stuff. So yeah, guys sign up for that. Um, yeah. And we're not, we're not, and, and it's not about the money. Like the money is just so we, we can spend our time putting this kind of content together. Cause otherwise we just wouldn't have the time to do it. You know, basically like that's all it's about. And obviously uh, so, the podcast is going to continue for free. The, I mean, the that, podcast is going to continue normally for free. This is just something for anyone who um, just wants to dive deeper with us on some of these subjects. Right. I, I will tell you the next, the next one I have in plan. I have planned to do is a voice of God technology webinar. Um, I, I have a lot of information on that, that I'd like to share. Mm. And I think that one I might do solo either way. Um, this is just kind of to give you an idea of what to expect on the Patreon. If you guys feel inclined to uh, sign up for that, go for it. If not, no big deal. We're still going to be here every week doing the podcast also. And uh, we love all you guys. Thank we you so you much. love you all. You're all amazing. Thank you so much. Right. And have a wonderful night, guys. We love you. Right. And I, I'm not ending this yet because I have to get to the page where I, um, <laughs> because you have to find right yeah how to end it. wherever screen is to end this um hey what's up dylan yeah thank you guys for the donations and thank, thank you, you guys for the donations you're amazing thank, thank you guys you so for much. hanging out with us, us tonight and you guys, guys want to come hang out with us in may at our conference yes come uh, to the conference grab a ticket the link is below journey to truthcon.com on april 1st this is not an april fool's prank we will have day passes available for 88 dollars for locals and people that can't come for the whole time um, so day passes will be available live stream tickets are available for 99 dollars if you can't make it in person and um tickets are still available guys um i'm losing my train of thought because i'm trying to read the chat at the same time but anyway we hope to see you there we're really looking forward to meeting everybody uh, and connecting in person. It's my favorite thing to do. And it's, it's going to be a great event. So um, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. And we're going to go ahead and sign out for tonight. Until next time, have a great evening. We love you. Bye, guys. <clears throat>